0: Hello and welcome to Disneyversity. The podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalog, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Encanto, seeing how they stand up today, how they push the boundaries of animation shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influence pop culture at large. (laughs) A brief disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney+, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I have been known to lose a single shoe when dashing home from a night out, I'm not your Disney-Versity lecturer. No, this week I'm... Sorry, that was me being a merperson whose voice has been taken away so they can come on dry land and record this podcast, which is ironic because I kind of need my voice to record this podcast, as we watch through 60 films and counting. After a longer break than anticipated, very sorry about that guys, we are back with a whole new era, the Disney renaissance. I've been waiting for this for so long, Sam. Bringing with it a bunch of beloved movies, some very exciting guests, a fresh batch of Disney-versity legends and TDLFs, and plenty more goodies to come. As I've just alluded to, joining me the whole way is an animation academic who really knows his who's it's from his it's and has Dinglehoppers ahoy... He's the king of the high seas, or at least the king of discussing Walt Disney Animation Studios films. I am, of course, talking about Doctor Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved movie catalogs of all time. Hey, Sam. Hi, Ben. <laughs> Here we are. Look at this. Look at Look this. A couple of guys. Who'd have thought? <laughs> We're back. We're back after a, a long time. It's been a long time. It's been a hell of a hell of a couple of months. <laughs> yeah. Sam, you're in London now, we're still recording remotely, uh, but we're both (laughs) living in South London now, you're not too far down the road from me, uh, which is lovely for me outside of this podcast, Uh, and maybe for this podcast we might be able to watch some of these films together now, who knows? We'll
1: have to watch them together but not discuss them, try and (laughs) mask our opinions while the watching is taking place so that we can still surprise each other. I know, because I
0: watch these films and go, Sam's going to lose his mind over this character. I'm (laughs) losing my mind over this character. And we'll just have to be sitting next to each other on a sofa with just poker faces going, "Mm. Mmm.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. Uh,
0: Interesting stuff. Yeah,
1: that's that's why that's certainly a fine little chap. (laughs) No strong opinions on him. (laughs)
0: Uh, But yeah, I mean, that's part of it. You've moved from Newcastle to London. Uh, We've just been busy as hell. I'm getting married later this year. So we're we're hoping that this era of the show, this next run of episodes will be relatively smooth. But there may be other little bits of breaks to come, uh, especially later in the year, because I'm to be off getting married and hopefully going on a honeymoon and all of that jazz but i'm just delighted to be back doing the regular pod it was really fun doing the chip and dale episode and some bonus bits here and there but this is it this is we're back we're back in
1: canon and that's a good place to be and oliver and company feels like so long ago <laughs> back when we were not worrying <laughs> Remember that. <laughs> Because why would
0: we, Sam? Why should we worry? Why should we care?
1: One thing that's happened... So I've moved house during this gap, and I actually came to stay with Ben in London while I looked at flats in London, and I was running around London having an incredibly stressful time wearing my Oliver & Company (laughs) t-shirt with a big picture of a a very carefree dodger singing Why Should I Worry on it? And every time I worried, I could just look at my t-shirt and be like, I shouldn't be worrying. I told you, Sam,
0: it's going to be much easier for you to find a house if you're not going into all these house viewings with a string of sausages in your mouth. But would you listen? <laughs> no, you would not. But uh, what are your thoughts and feelings then heading into the Renaissance era? What What are your connections to these movies?
1: I mean, I've seen all of these movies, bar one or two of them, quite a lot. And it's it's kind of mixed feelings for me, actually, because I've said before, when you first asked me to do the podcast, the stuff I was most excited to talk about was the really mad obscure stuff a good chunk of which we've now covered, and there's a bit more of that to come in the future. Um, you know, there's another bizarre era following the Renaissance, where they're, they're trying a few different things. But for me, the Renaissance movies are like I've talked about these movies at work a lot. I've watched these movies a lot, so I, I don't know. Am I excited for this? And then I stuck on the Little Mermaid, and I was like, Oh man, yeah, I yeah, am. This is this is gold. And also digging into the lasting legacies for these movies is so fun as well because. <laughs> this next run of films is like by far the the densest when it comes to the number of spinoffs they've had.
0: Okay, so just to be clear, you are excited about this era, Yeah, I am excited. excited. Sorry, (laughs) I didn't want to
1: start start us off on the down there.
0: Well, I am very excited, because for me, this is the perfect mix, right, of we've done so many films in, in this show so far, and one of the joys of it has been watching stuff that I've never seen before, or eras that I didn't know about. But this, a lot of what we're going to be watching now other films that I grew up on in a massive way. Little Mermaid we had on VHS, this was a, a big one in our household, and especially some of the ones coming up, even more so, like massive like childhood cornerstone movies. And I'm really excited to kind of dig into them and re-watch them, have an excuse to re-watch these movies because I hadn't seen The Little Mermaid in years and years and years. It had been a long, long time since I last sat down to watch it. And that's part of the joy, revisiting these things and hopefully learning a lot about the all the context around it that I never knew. But even within the Renaissance, once we get past Pocahontas, uh, that is stuff that I don't really know. I've seen Hercules like once, I think I saw Tarzan in the cinema, but I didn't have those videos, I haven't really gone back to those movies, so even within this like massive show-stopping era for Disney, There are films that I really don't know very well so for me this is the ideal mix of like ones that I know I'm really excited about and also more of the unknown. Into the unknown Sam, that's where we're going. And before we begin our discussion of The Little Mermaid we have another exciting little bit of business to get to. Uh, So as you've probably seen, if you're following us on Twitter or on Instagram, whether that's the Disneyversity accounts or myself and Sam, you'll hear all the handles at the end of the show. You'll probably have seen us announce this already, but this is our official on the podcast announcement that we are doing our very first live show, Disneyversity live in person with all the fun, all the sections. All the stuff that you love about this show. And that's going to be part of the London Podcast Festival this September. We will be coming to you live from King's Place in London on Sunday the 11th of September. And the film we've chosen to cover for this one is... Drumroll... Who framed Roger Rabbit? Yes, I'm finally going to watch the film that Sam was flabbergasted in our Rescue Rangers episode that I somehow haven't seen. We didn't want to do a regular episode in the live environment, so this is a chance to step briefly outside of canon, look at something that's very much connected to the legacy of Walt Disney Animation Studios, still has tons of animated goodness in it, and slots pretty neatly into the general area of the timeline that we're currently in. So, yes. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, live in person? I cannot wait to be there and see all your faces, so do go online and buy your tickets today. Sam, are you nervous? Excited? How are you feeling for this one?
1: I am very excited, you know, there's one thing I love more than getting you to watch these films, it's forcing you to wait to watch these films. Uh, You've still got to wait a very long time before you're allowed to watch Lilo and Stitch. But I was amazed to find out on the Rescue Rangers episode you said you hadn't seen Roger Rabbit. Uh, That that really blew my mind because it feels like it's so much in your... Movie wheelhouse. I just don't understand how you've not got around to it. Yeah, it's going to be a real trip. It's going to be full of crazy animated characters from, you know, the deep history of the medium. And I'm really looking forward to finding out which ones you recognize and which ones you've never seen before.
0: (laughs) Oh, I can't wait. I'm very excited. So you can come and join us at King's Place in London on the 11th of September, 2 p.m., £9.50 a ticket. Go and book them now. They're on sale now. Find them on the King's Place website, which I believe is kingsplace.co.uk. Find ticket links on our Disneyversity channel, on my Twitter, on Sam's Twitter. You'll find a ticket link there. Please do come and join us. It's going to be an absolute blast. And we can't wait to bring Disneyversity to you all live in person with our faces. And voices and all the fun stuff.
1: I hope you guys like my face.
0: <laughs> I like your yeah. face. Sam. Do,
1: do, do you think the people are going to like my face? Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> we have to
0: see if the people think your face matches your voice, and the same for me. Yeah. Although we put we put up pictures of our faces occasionally, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like not not everyone is probably on our Twitter though, so I, I hope there's a few. People are pleasantly surprised. Uh, oh, I'll have to pick out something to wear. <laughs> I know. Do you know? What? I've already been thinking about that.
0: We'll have discussions. We'll have a chat.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. That's ominous.
0: Okay. Anyway, but that is enough from us. We're all sat down. The register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. So this time we are being reborn into the Disney Renaissance with the very first film of this new era, 1989's *The Little Mermaid*. Okay then, Sam, this is an extremely famous Disney movie. This is one of the biggest ones. I can't imagine there's that many people who don't know (laughs) what The Little Mermaid is about. But can you give us a front-to-back plot run-through of this movie?
1: Okay, so The Little Mermaid is about a little mermaid named Ariel. Yes, both small in stature and a child, uh, or, or a teenager. And she... Unlike the other mermaids who like to keep themselves to themselves is obsessed with the human world and when she sees her first In-person human Eric the prince of an unnamed kingdom probably Denmark She falls madly in love and decides that she will do anything to be with him including selling her voice to the sea witch Ursula for a pair of legs and She has to get Eric to give her her first true love's first kiss so that the Spell will be broken, she can get our voice back and live happily ever after with him. Which, in a very roundabout way, is what ends up happening.
0: Fire some weird little gribbly worm people and evil electric eels and all sorts of shenanigans. But we'll we'll get there, we'll get there. Uh, well as usual before we head into our discussion of the film itself let's talk about what is going on what's going on sam what is happening in disney at this time Uh, i guess we kind of teed this up as we headed out of the dark age our previous era of the show but what are the pieces that are in place that means the disney renaissance is happening and and that it begins with this film we've got jeffrey katzenberg leading the studio We have songwriters like uh, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken who are all over this film, who had done little bits of Disney stuff in the past. We have directors like John Musker and Ron Clements. So where did all these people come from? Why is it now that the Disney renaissance is happening?
1: So it is really this kind of confluence of events. You've got all these people uh, in the right place at the right time. You know, Katzenberg is important in the sense that he was kind of running the studio bringing these elements together as we'll see on this movie in particular some of his uh, decisions that he wanted to implement might have done more harm than good but <laughs> that's just katzenberg all over michael eisner of course is in the top position at the company and i think really what's happened with these guys is they came on board as movie studio people and they've realized over time that animation is at the heart of the studio, and that animation is, is, can be their bread and butter if they treat the studio right. So initially when they got there, they moved the animation department from the main Disney campus to an out-of-the-way sort of warehouse in Glendale. But after the success, the relative success of Basil and Oliver, they're starting to expand the animation department and they actually opened a new studio in Disney World in Orlando to do like pick-up stuff and certain scenes and eventually whole movies would be made there so yeah we've also got musker and clements who directed this film and would direct several of the biggest films of the disney renaissance and beyond they had been at the studio since around the fox and the hound they worked on black cauldron and their first film as a directing duo was basil the great mouse detective which you know some of the elements that would become definitive of the disney renaissance formula if you want to call it that like um, big flamboyant singing villain for example are in place in great mouse detective that's also a pretty significant movie in terms of the history of the studio's experimentation with computer animation We saw the Big Ben sequence, and then we saw what they were doing with a lot of the vehicles and Oliver and company. And from a visual standpoint, the integration of computer animation is a major part of what sets the Renaissance aside from Disney's previous work. And again, we'll see a little bit of that here, but actually the next movie, Rescue Us Down Under, is um, a huge step in terms of computer animation at Disney. We'll, We'll get there in time. And yeah, we've got Ashman and Mencken. So, Howard Ashman, they're both up and coming Broadway composers that had a big off Broadway hit with Little Shop of Horrors a few years prior, which was adapted into a film. And Ashman wrote the lyrics for Once Upon a Time in New York City, the Huey Lewis song that opens Oliver and Company. Not the best song in Oliver and Company <laughs> well, by any a means. Bar. That's a, it's a, a high bar. It's a high bar. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, once upon a time, New York City, it was okay, I guess. It was enough for Katzenberg to reach out to him and ask him what he wanted to do next, and if he wanted to work on any of these stories that Disney had in development, one of which was The Little Mermaid, and he brought Mencken, who was his collaborator on Little Shop of Horrors, with him to write the songs. And those two are hugely important in the development of what had become the Renaissance formula, Uh, histories usually give special credit to Ashman in particular, and we'll talk more about their influence when we start talking about the songs in the film, I guess. But yeah, really important guys. Howard Ashman wouldn't live very long past The Little Mermaid, and so these two guys wrote the songs for Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin together. But Ashman died from AIDS before Beauty and the Beast was even finished. So that's a real tragic figure at the centre of Disney's success in this era. But Mencken would go on to work with a bunch of other lyricists and compose the music for most of the Renaissance films. Yeah, so that's pretty much our cast of characters going into this one. And all these elements in the same place at the same time, it feels like Ashman and Mencken were the last piece of the puzzle needed to tap into the Disney magic that had informed so many of the real classics that that studio had been putting out in the golden age and that is very much something that over the course of this film's production eisner and katzenberg became aware of like it became clear that something was happening and that is highlighted in the way that this film is marketed and spoken of the word renaissance was first used in relation to this period during the promotion of this film really by jeffrey katzenberg the renaissance was just beginning but they were like here it is with one film we are reborn we're here yes there's an interview with katzenberg for this movie where he says what the little mermaid represents i hope is kind of a renaissance period for the artists themselves and there's a lot of discussion around you know why is this the disney renaissance why do i call this the disney renaissance how much of the um, aptitude of this label is based on what these films actually are and what this period actually is and how much of it is just savvy marketing on Disney's part, you know? But actually, when you look at this, it started before this movie was even out. They knew they had something on their hands and they knew that, they were tapping into that old school Disney magic, and you see that in the trailer for this movie. It says, "For over 50 years, Disney has been turning classic stories into classic animated motion pictures." And while this voiceover is being said, we see clips from loads of classic Disney princess musical films. The last film, the most recent film that we're seeing in that montage is Sleep and Beauty*. So already the scene. Everything that happened after Sleeping Beauty, forget about that. All this weirdo experimentation, all the Woolly Riverman films, all that like jazz music and pop culture and the darkness of the 1980s, forget about that. This is what Disney do. Disney make fairy tale musicals. Even though they only made a handful of them up to this point, they were really setting out their stall and saying, this is what you come to Disney for. And we're doing it again. We're back.
0: Yeah, it is mad that this is our first princess movie since Sleeping Beauty, which feels like a long time ago. And we've only had three princess movies in the history of the studio at this point. We've had Snow White right at the beginning, Cinderella quite a few years down the line, and Sleeping Beauty further down the line than that. And this is like a big return to princess fairy tale stories. So why did this story come about now? How long had the little mermaid as a fairy tale been on their radar or something to adapt?
1: Well, that's always a great question when we're dealing with these fairy tales because almost any fairy tale you can think of Walt Disney the man had tried to produce in one form or another in the golden age. So in the 1930s around the time of Snow White, I mean we've talked about this before, right? There was so many Ideas for what could have followed up Snow White, what that could have been and Walt had planned to make a live-action animated hybrid film a little bit like what Song of the South would become Starring Hans Christian Andersen himself. So sort of a biography that interspersed his life Presumably quite a sanitized version of his life, but we'll probably talk about this later But there are aspects of Hans Christian Andersen's life that aren't quite Disney uh, fairy tale and so it was going to intersperse aspects of his life with animated versions of his stories which is basically what song of the south does with uncle remus i mean uncle remus is a fictional character but it's, it's a similar kind of structure so little mermaid was one of the stories that was going to be included and the live action portions were going to be produced by a guy called samuel goldwyn who would resurrect the idea for the daniel k hans christian anderson musical in 1952 of is that a movie you're familiar with, ben? No, not at all. No, fine, okay. <laughs> but it's an interesting remediation of Hans Christian Andersen's life story, which sounds like what Walt was trying to do in the 30s. And then it was put away, it was put to bed. There was a little bit of art produced for it, which would then be resurrected down the line when they came to produce this film, which has happened with several stories that they tried to adapt in the past. But this idea was resurrected by... Ron Clements, who pitched it in the same, we talked about this before, pitched it in the same meeting where Oliver and Company was kind of conceived of. So they got all the animators around, asked them to pitch ideas, and one idea was Little Mermaid, that was rejected. One idea was Oliver and Company, that was accepted. But the next morning, actually, Katzenberg called Clements and said that it changed his mind and asked him to expand this idea into a treatment. So that is when this started to snowball into the movie that it would eventually become. But it wasn't a concerted effort from the start to be like, we're going to make the next next big Princess Disney musical. It was an evolutionary process, and there was resistance towards making a princess movie. Princess movies are for girls, and there's this old conventional wisdom that girls will watch boys' movies, but boys won't watch girls' movies, right? It was assumed that Little Mermaid wouldn't be as viable as Oliver and Company because that's a quote-unquote boys movie, at least, like a gender-neutral movie, and this is just for girls. And that obviously was disproven, but like I say, during production I think it became evident to everybody that this was something quite special.
0: And clearly, as we're saying that, we're also using the phrase just for girls in inverted commas uh, in terms of what the the, the studio is presenting this as being. Because I I think that's something that we will talk about, that in that Disney way it's kind of... Even though it's gone down as a princess movie and it's all the kind of girly stuff, traditionally speaking, the movie's got a lot more in it than that side of the film, which I think is really fascinating. Well, just one last thing before we head into our main discussion then. Just a little bit of extracurricular stuff if you are wanting, well, some spoilers uh, for what's coming up, but also if you're fascinated by... Alan Menken and Howard Ashman there is a very good documentary on Disney Plus called Howard which is about Howard Ashman's life and career his work at Disney but also his work outside Disney and what led him there and dealing with his legacy as a gay man who died of AIDS it interrogates that and how that connected with Disney at the time and a lot of that film is kind of maybe making up for the fact that Disney didn't celebrate him enough at the, at the time. It's a fascinating documentary, and if you like this podcast and if you like digging into the background of these films and, and the people involved in making them, uh, I can't recommend that enough on Disney+. Plus. It's called Howard. But anyway, Sam, should we do this? Should we delve into the bountiful oceans of The Little Mermaid and see what this film has in store for us?
1: Let's do it. <laughs>
0: Right from the beginning of this movie, I don't know about you, Sam, but I could feel that something was different. This film, as the start of the Renaissance era, as this return to princess movies, as this like film that the studio knew was going to be a big deal, it feels grand right from the beginning and for once we don't have the opening book we don't have the storybook moments. and in fact it did surprise me that this film all about the ocean starts in the air we start in the clouds with the birds before sweeping down to the seafront but there was something about the grand orchestral score that opens this film the kind of sweep of the visuals the sweep of the audio soundscape that just made this feel like, oh, we're not messing around. We're back in like big territory here.
1: Yeah, it's got a grand score both visually and musically, and you know it could have been even bigger though. It's a ship and the sailors on it, and Eric is among their number, and they are singing about sailing and oh boy, they love it. <laughs> Singing about the fathoms below. That's the name of the song and it feels like a big production number It feels like it's about to burst into it into a huge chorus But it never quite gets there and that is a Broadway trope a Broadway musical opens with a big choral number where uh, You're introduced to the world of the story and that's what Howard Ashman wanted to bring to Little Mermaid and Howard Ashman is well, I would call a structuralist. He is a student of how Broadway musicals should be structured. That's the energy that he wants to bring to Little Mermaid, and he knows that it needs this big opening number. But I think the producers were like, no, it's taking too long to get the action, it's taking too long to get the characters, so we're just gonna have this very quick little shanty, and then we'll meet Prince Eric, who's one of our main characters. And you can kind of tell they had a a much longer version in mind, and they would get to do that in the incredible opening of Beauty and the Beast. You can see they've been given... Everything that we're seeing this from a Howard Ashman perspective gets upped to 11 in Beauty and the Beast. They're obviously given a lot more free reign on that movie, so that has an even more grandiose Broadway opening. Um, But yeah, this is good. We've got a lot of on-screen characters in, in all of these sailors. We have a nice little dog, and... But you want to talk about the dog? I just I, <laughs> can see your face, leather. I love the dog. I love Max.
0: He's so expressive. His when we first see him and his hair's like blowing in the breeze. Uh, he's he's just great. I love that character. But also the the level of texture and the detail of all that hair blowing in the wind. Again, it just speaks to the fact that we're in a different era, a slightly more modern era. They're kind of getting on to grips with more complex things. Big fan of Max.
1: Another thing I'm a big fan of in this opening is the way that we transition from the surface world to the undersea world. This
0: was my favourite thing, right, about this whole sequence, because as much as it surprised me that we started in the air, the way that, as you say, it's quite a Broadway way into the world, rather than the characters themselves. Like, we see Eric here, but we don't really meet Eric properly until later. That it's like, okay, we're going to take you, we're flying through the air, now we're at kind of boat level and then we kind of plunge into the water. The slippery fish flies off the side of the boat, and then we're down into the fathoms below. I I love that stuff.
1: And the subtlety of the performance of the fish, because when he lands in the water, he looks like a fish, and then in one shot, we see him transition quite quickly from a more animalistic fish to a more anthropomorphic fish. We initially see him from the perspective of the trollermen, And once he lands in the water, he gains a personality, he gains a character. It's like, oh right, these fish are people. That's the kind of movie that we're in. We're going to be meeting a lot of fish who are also people. And that, I don't know, kind of visualises one of the central themes in this movie, or one of the central ideas in this movie, which is the conflict between nature and man, which is obviously a central idea in the whole disney canon
0: and i think once you go into the water as well i was just talking about the the animation of max and the complexity of all that fur blowing in the breeze when we head into the water there's like a different kind of shimmery effect i think than we've really seen in other disney productions the level of of kind of shimmer happening over the top of what we're seeing that things are coming in and out of focus because of the way the light is playing in the water I thought was really beautiful. And I just love, one of my favourite things, and it solidified watching this opening sequence, watching it again for the podcast, is I just love animated sequences going through water, going down into the depths. Like of tracking up, shots. Yeah, big tracking shot through the water. that you get that here, and again, just kind of going past all of the wildlife, the undersea wildlife and the fish and all the shoals of things. I love that. One of my favourite Studio Ghibli movies is Ponyo, and I think it has some of the most underrated stuff in the Ghibli canon. I think we might have talked about that on our Ghibliotech crossover episode, but it gets talked about as, like, I don't know, safe, cosy Miyazaki, but there is an incredible sequence right at the beginning of that film. Going up from the ocean floor all the way through up to the surface with all of these creatures and stuff, this long tracking shot through the ocean and it is absolutely stunning. And you think of like the stuff in Finding Nemo where you're going through the water and seeing all the different communities of fish and sea creatures and stuff. I love that stuff so much, and it was a joy to see that kind of thing in The Little Mermaid.
1: Yeah, a lot of similarities between Ponyo and The Little Mermaid actually. That's I'm sure several. Um university essays have been written comparing those movies none by any of my students though maybe i'll start suggesting that (laughs) if you're
0: listening to this and sam is your lecturer then there you go you've got an instant (laughs) instant way in so we have this intro that takes us into this underwater world under the sea you might say and that is where we meet our central character ariel sam what do you make of ariel as a character how does she fit for you in this lineage of Disney princesses.
1: What do you like? What do you dislike about Ariel? Yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? I feel like the common take on Ariel is that like, she's a transitional character between the very flat, one-note princesses of the golden age and the more modern, self-possessed princesses of the renaissance which i guess is is true right because she has a modern attitude she talks and behaves like a real modern teenager but the way that she's characterized and and her goals or at least how her goals evolve over the course of the movie is very much i'm in love with a prince who i haven't met Let me have him, please. Yeah, it's still in that sort of sleep and beauty, Snow White, love at first sight place. But she's so much more likeable than those characters just by virtue of of being better written and I'm gonna say better performed. Like with no disrespect to the actresses who brought those Disney characters to life, who brought Aurora and Snow White and Cinderella to life, Geordie Benson's performance as Ariel is on another level. It places the disney princess on the same level as those sidekicks who got a lot more humor and characterization in the older disney movies right that's where much of the writing went and much of the characterization went was into the sidekicks into characters like the mice or grumpy and people like that and you know ariel is the first princess who's really afforded that level of personality so we've got a shout out with Jordy benson old collaborator of Howard Ashman's from Broadway, starred in his musical Smile, which was about Beauty Queens, in which she sings a song called Disneyland, about how much she wants to go to Disneyland. So there you go. Yeah, You can check that one out on YouTube. So yeah, we've also got to shout out Glenn Keane, who was the great animator of the Renaissance, the real central figure in terms of the actual animators, the people who were drawn the movements of the characters during this period. So we'd seen his work on characters like Ratigan or the incredible bear in the fox and the hound and here he really shines one of his most iconic performances as ariel the little mermaid and oh, just i love her hair ben i love ariel's hair the way it moves the way it floats it's so vivid and realistic and gives her such an iconic silhouette and such an iconic palette you know
0: yeah i, I was really struck by that by while i was watching the film because It's not just her hair, it's her tail as well. So the core of the character is very solid. Like, in the middle, she's very solid. But there'll be points where, in a scene, it'll just be a bit of dialogue or something. But at the bottom end, her fin is, like, floating around in the water, just whatever way the current is going. And her hair is doing the same. So you have this character who... You feel the control of her body, but then you also feel that like these other parts of her are just kind of flowing with the water, and that is so hypnotic to watch.
1: And then there's also, I would say, a very significant third party in this performance who is under disgust compared to Glenn King and Jordan Underdiscussed Benson.
0: and that discussed <laughs> But on this podcast we will give them the credit they deserve. Doot doot do do.
1: The credit, we must. You (laughs) Ah, could have done that. (laughs) So, on this movie, they were referring back to the Golden Age in so many ways, one of which is they were resurrecting old methods like the use of live-action reference footage, which hadn't really been a big part of the way these films were made since... Probably Sleeping Beauty was the last big one to use it, also one of the last big films with human leads, so that's not... And they really got that owl and dressed him up
0: and then drew over that
1: um, to do the (laughs) cosplay scene, yeah. You know what, you joke, but actually now that I think about it, someone must have been portraying the owl in some sense, just like a tall guy with a cape on. (laughs) Note to the owl wrangler, keep the owl far away
0: from Walt Disney. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, good (laughs) callback. Listeners for context, if you don't know what that means... Listen to all the other episodes. Disney once stopped on an owl. It's a thing as a child. He stomped it to death. Go back and find the episode. I can't even remember which
1: one it was on. I think it was Fox and the Hound, which is just the bleakest that we've ever recorded. So, um, there was an actress performing aerial scenes in live action. What, just wiggling around? Well, I mean, like her upper body. Okay. <laughs> And she is brilliant. I'll definitely post some of this stuff on Twitter. I'm pretty sure a lot of it's on YouTube. There's an actress called Sherry Stoney, who was sort of a, a, I think she's like an improv comedian, primarily. All of Ariel's iconic facial expressions from this are taken from her. And it's especially palpable in the sort of the pantomime sequences after she's lost her voice and she has to convey so much through her physical performance. And this, like the dinner table scene where she's twirling her hair with a fork, there's just so much character in the performances that are being given by this woman, Sherry Stoney. And when you look at them side by side, it's like, oh my god, this woman is Ariel. How is this woman Ariel? Sorry,
0: what was that? A, a fork? What's a fork? I ate my dinner with a
1: knife and a dingle hopper. <laughs> So good. Uh, (laughs) You must use one for your hair to get that incredible quiff as well. Thank you very much.
0: That's really interesting. I wouldn't have thought that they were using reference footage for that stuff, but I think it adds to, as you say, how expressive this character is, and she needs to be expressive both in the water and out of it. I I think she does have more personality, as you were saying, than some of the other Disney princesses. In fact, let's get into the meaty stuff around Ariel now, because... We grow up watching and enjoying The Little Mermaid, right? We all have a good time with The Little Mermaid. And then at a certain point, somebody semi-correctly, but maybe slightly glibly points out, ah, that's the film where the woman gives up her voice to be with a man she's never met. And that's bad, and that's not cool,
1: man. It's just such an obvious, overt like, oh, you want to talk about like a sexist storyline in a Disney movie? It's the one where she gives up her (laughs) voice to be with a man she's never met to serve a man that she's never met, you know. But and I get that, but it it
0: feels like a very surface level reading, and under the surface, under the sea surface. Well, at the start of the film, she is in a slightly, as the Gen Zs would say, maybe a bit of a pick-me girl. She's like, she's not like other girls, she's not like Triton's other daughters. They're all playing around in front of the mirror. And I like the fact that at the beginning, she's off scavenging. She's like off in shipwrecks, trying to find weird little things from the human world. And she's positioned as being slightly rebellious, not doing what she's supposed to be doing, but also different to the rest of the kind of undersea community and she's she has this passion for the surface for the land and what happens what human culture is because she doesn't really fit in where she is and it struck me that despite that reading of the film that very obvious and yeah it is there she does give up her voice to go up to the land but it struck me that a lot of her desire was actually not specifically around Eric and more just to get to be on land, to go and explore this place that she's never been able to explore before. And we, as the audience, know that the cost of her having to give up her voice to do that is bad. The cost of that comes from Ursula and it's positioned as, like, the poisoned contract she's going to sign. But also it's a temporary that it's like the trial you have to go through in order to be able to stay up there and yes as part of that be with Eric but also a lot of it for her is to be up with human culture is we, we understand that it's a bad thing that she's signing her voice away and that's not what she's supposed to do so we want we have to feel the tension of understanding what she wants which we'll get to the songs but they really help with that but knowing that the position that she's in to have to get that is a dangerous and dark position to be in and not the right way for her to go about it. What do you think, Sam?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, here's the thing, to your point. Initially, the song is not part of your world. Initially, the song is part of that world. And everyone calls it part of your world. That's what it's called on the soundtrack, even the initial version. But part of your world, lyrically, is the reprise. After she's seen Eric to begin with she doesn't care about any individual human She wants to be part of that world and then she falls madly in love with Eric as soon as she sees him because he's the first Human she's met she associates him with that in the same way that I mean Ariel is a child Right and all of the other princesses have been as well But Snow White doesn't come off as a child to me at all right Ariel is characterized as a modern teenage girl And teenage girls are liable to fall in love, you know, head over heels for guys who come from slightly different social circles or whatever. Ariel falls in love with this guy because she's a kid and he represents something that she wants. He represents a a chance to escape from her life, a chance to escape from her, you know, slightly overbearing father and that's fine that's the arc of a teenage girl i think the fault of the movie for me from a feminist perspective is that and i'll be surprised if they don't do something to this effect in in the upcoming live-action remake is that that remains her goal for the entire movie and at the culmination of her arc there's no point of realisation where it's like, oh, okay, I'm on the surface now. I got what I wanted initially. Maybe I'm going to chill out with this guy. Because, like, when Triton goes ballistic and destroys all of her human stuff, he's right. Ariel shouldn't be obsessing over... You know, maybe he's a bit over the top, but she shouldn't be obsessing over... She shouldn't be in love with a guy she doesn't know. If that was your daughter, and she's saying all this stuff, right, you probably react in kind. It's framed as, like, prejudice on Triton's part because Eric's human. But as a viewer... It seems like there's something real to to what Triton feels and something valid. So, to me, her love for Eric isn't necessarily dated or sexist. It's realistic. The problem is that she stays with him at the end. If this was made today, and they are going to make it today, I think she should realise at the end that, oh, okay, I don't know this guy yet. I want to stay on the surface. That's what I want. I don't need to commit straight away to this guy. Maybe we can go on a few dates first or whatever, you know? I think that's the issue at the core of it. it is to do with the end. I think the way that they develop her obsession and her desires as the movie goes plays realistically. It's just the the resolution that isn't quite satisfying from that perspective.
0: See, I think part of the issue is that apart from him being very dishy, I think Eric is a blank slate here if we have a princess with a bit more of something about her compared to the previous princesses this is still very much a disney prince who is just like Mm. hey here's a hunky dude who's not really got much going on like max has all the personality and eric has none he is the hunkiest dude yes though (laughs) is he disneyversity hunks is this a thing now
1: (laughs) (laughs) we'll try and um we'll, we'll we'll see if we can keep that going across the next few movies there was one other thing that I wanted to mention in terms of Ariel as a character, and this does cross over with this discussion of her as a female character. But I think there's some interesting things to say about her as an animal character, or at least as a character who is um, comes from this natural world and enters into this man-made world. And you know that is obviously a lot of those conflicts of vocalized through the Sebastian character, but Ariel's part of that ecosystem as well. And that's another thing that separates her from the other Disney princesses and which puts her in a similar category to at least Pocahontas of the ones that we're going to come to is that she isn't defined by domesticity. She lives in a castle, but she's not cleaning the floors like Cinderella, right? Or like even Sleeping Beauty lives in that very cozy domestic situation with the fairies. She lives in this wide open space of the sea, and she has an affinity with nature. Um, almost, you know, like Princess Mononoke, like she's this outsider from the human world, but unlike Princess Mononoke. And unlike Pocahontas, actually, she aspires to domesticity. She wants that. She wants to live in the human world. She wants to live with a man. She wants to be a wife. And there's an arc that a lot of the kind of wild Disney heroes go through, most of whom to this point have been male, characters like Mowgli and Tramp and Thomas O'Malley, where they have to be domesticated by the end of the film. They're brought into the domestic space, into the kind of bourgeois space as well. But they do it reluctantly, and Ariel wants it. Ariel wants to be domesticated. And I think, from a gender perspective, that is something that separates her from these previous wild or natural Disney characters who are all male. As a character, she is rebellious, but what she is rebelling away from is this wild, natural world, and what she's rebelling to get to is domesticity. And I think that Disney knows that this version of the character is less appealing because as with so many of its characters, the domesticated two-legged Ariel isn't the Ariel that people want to see, right? Like, we don't want to see human Pinocchio, we don't want to see human beast, we don't want to see human Ariel. The one that we have affection for is the mermaid, so the sequels and spin-offs all find ways to contrive to return her to her mermaid state which is also her wild free rebellious state so i think that in doing so they maybe re-ascribe her some of her feminist credentials
0: i think also just you're right whenever we see ariel she's in mermaid form she's not leg ariel But also, all the stuff we remember from the film is the underwater stuff, and there's quite a chunk in the second half. It's like the opposite of Jaws. It starts, the first half is in sea, and then the second half is on land. Once we get on land, and that stuff of them going through Prince Eric's kingdom, and the stuff in the castle, I
1: had not remembered any of that
0: side of things, and I don't think people do it in general.
1: I like that version of Ariel. I'm not trying to diss that version of Ariel. It becomes quite a satisfying rom-com for about half an hour, right? Like, I think the dinner table stuff and the kiss the girl stuff. The version of the character that we'll get there is really charming, and it's nice to see her in this position where she's really happy because she's got exactly what she wants, but she's also frustrated because she can't express herself, and that's a, a good little point of conflict to find our character in, and we'll get some funny beats from that
0: she's literally a fish out of water sam yeah right yeah
1: <laughs> exactly so it's it's good but it's not what people remember in the parks you're probably going to see ariel as a woman quite a lot because it's easier to do have a, a human woman in a dress than a human woman in a fish tail who can't move <laughs> right um and you sometimes get dolls where she's got legs or maybe at least ones where you can strap her fish tail over her legs to transform your own aerial but predominantly that's not what people want that's a, a kind of core difference between a dreamworks movie and a disney movie DreamWorks movies return the character to their monstrous state, to their weirdo state, right? Fiona in Shrek ends up as an ogre. Shrek in Shrek 2 ends up as an ogre. Mind masquerades as a normal person, ends up as a Mega Mind <laughs> at the end, Monsters vs. Aliens, the big woman in Monsters vs. Aliens doesn't get to become human at the end. They retain that. And that's savvy, because that's actually what we as the audience want to see, is people coming to terms with these facets of themselves, rather than being forced into these shapes, which to us read as abominable because they are not the characters who we have fallen in love with. Like,
0: human Pinocchio, absolute freak, don't want to see him.
1: Yeah, not at all. Puppet Pinocchio, yes. Yeah, you're a huge fan of of, <laughs> of all versions of Pinocchio, though, aren't you, Bear? Right, okay. <laughs> as if the human version's any
0: better. Just to briefly go off-piste, the Guillermo del Toro Pinocchio trailer came out, and Pinocchio looks adorable and in trying to make him an actual weird little puppet boy they've made him cuter than if you actually try and make a cute pinocchio that is the magic of guillermo del toro that is the magic of just going hey what if we just made him a little freak and maybe that could be endearing in its own way so we'll definitely broadcast (laughs) our thoughts on that in some form when it when it comes out (laughs) but anyway for now come on we've talked around it long enough let's get into the songs because as you say These aren't just songs. These are massive structural points in this film. These are the most Broadway-ish tunes we've had so far, not just in the way they sound, but in the way that they introduce several characters and what they want and who they are and where this story is going. I mean, part of your world. Let's go straight in there. That feels like the pivotal, the absolute definition of a Broadway but also a Disney I want song. This is Ariel pouring her heart out to really nobody but herself about the thing that she most desires. And the thing that we as an audience need to know is driving her in all of the decisions
1: that she makes and it's it's these structural points that ashman is so good at realizing but so passionate about advocating for uh, jeffrey katzenberg wanted this removed from the movie what? after a test screening he yeah. wanted
0: to get rid of this song
1: he thought kids were wiggling too much during part of your world he thought the kids the kids are getting bored because it's not it's it's too slow or whatever <sighs> And Ashman and Glenn Keane, who really... Uh, Glenn Keane was originally assigned to Ursula because he was good at villains. You know, we saw that with Ratigan and with Fox and the Hound. It was part of your world that made him want to do Ariel. He wanted to animate the centre of that number. So Glenn Keane and Howard Ashman fought like hell for part of your world and th- they had to keep it in the end. And it is so... It's so structurally important because there's like two reprises of it and it's part of the score it's, it's Ariel's like motif so it has to be there yeah Ashman he knows that this is something you need to have in a satisfying sort of musical comedy you know he always references things like Brigadoon or My Fair Lady or The Wizard of Oz where these sequences are central and in fact in Little Shop of Horrors he actually in kind of parodies. Have you seen Little Shop of Horrors? I've never seen Little Shop of Horrors. I
0: know, I know. (laughs) This podcast is
1: exposing all my blind spots. (sighs) So, in Little Shop of Horrors, he actually parodies the I Want song, because he has Audrey, the, the female lead, who lives on kind of skid row in 1950s new york singing about wanting to live in a what to us as the audience is a very boring suburban house so she's singing about how oh she just wants like a microwave and like a picket fence and stuff like that so it, it kind of like she's not singing about wanting anything big or grand she's singing about wanting something very normal and that song somewhere that's green is very very musically similar to Part of Your World. It's, somewhere that's green. It's very, very part similar. that world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's, there's, there's stretches of it that are almost identical musically, mm-hmm. Um, also obviously composed by Alan Menken. And in the movie, I don't know if this was necessarily Ashman's idea, in that sequence, when she's dreaming that she's in the house, there's an animated bird flying around in a Snow White kind of pastiche. So there's very much a sense that Disney is part of this lineage. Classic Disney is part of this lineage of classic musicals, not necessarily on the stage, but informing, at least from Ashman's perspective, see also the Disneyland song in uh, Smile, the fibre of the American musical, just as much as something like My Fair Lady or The Wizard of Oz has done.
0: I think the other thing with that melody, though, is that it's just absolutely gorgeous. If they did reuse a bit of that from Little Shop of Horrors, I can't blame them, because honestly, watching it again... And I've grown up knowing this song and knowing this film, but it really, just the musicality of it, like, tugs at your heartstrings so much. The melody of it is really gorgeous. And I like the way that there's a point where you think the song is going to go really big and, like, explode, and it really shrinks down. And Ariel, like, sort of basically speaks, saying, I want to be where the people are. There's so much interiority to that song, and it resists the temptation to go big at certain points and then feels bigger because of that
1: and you can see ashman telling geordie benson to do that in the studio footage he directs the singers recording these songs that's another way in which I mean, we haven't even got the half of his influence on this film, but that's another way in which he was so influential, was that he was directing. As a songwriter, Woods, on a Broadway cast recording, he's directing the delivery of the voice actors, and he's very much saying, take it back, you're belting too much, take it back, we need to be intimate. It's a great sequence, it's so well animated. I love the way that they use the sort of the vertical axis of the water. This is a number which takes place sort of on the y-axis. She's not moving backwards and forwards, she's moving up and down, which is representative of the fact that she's singing about wanting to rise from the depths to the surface. And she
0: has that moment where she's like reaching through the hole in the rock, like reaching up towards the world. Like the visuals and the song itself go together hand in hand in a really
1: beautiful way. It's just perfect for the song. It's it's perfect sequence. It's the best song in the movie, Ooh. in my opinion. Is that a hot take? Because it wasn't nominated for an Academy Award. Right. Kiss the girl and Under the Sea were nominated for an Oscar. Under the Sea won. We Kiss the Girl was. Yes. See, that's a. fun it was it was song. Sebastian Mania. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I
0: I can understand that that instinct. To yeah. Be fair. Uh, the, Kiss the girl is a fun
1: song, but it's not like the big song from this film. No. This is the best song in the movie. I'm I'm saying it as a matter of fact now. I'm not even asking. (laughs) Yes, Sam. Yes, sir. Yes, Doctor.
0: (laughs) The other thing that really stood out to me of just, again, the, the visuals playing into this, there's a really slow zoom in on Ariel when she's singing I Want More. And you're right, on the one hand, there is the verticality to this song of her in the water and swimming up towards the world, but also so much of it is on her and her face and her hair swirling around in the water It is beautiful to look at. Also, it's kind of as the song is beginning or just before the song, but Sebastian blinking through those glasses with his eyes magnetised was an incredible moment.
1: In the reprise of that as well, there's um, the moment where his his jaw drops and Scuttle has to push his jaw back up. He's he's great at, (laughs) at reacting to this. That first reprise is really iconic as well, when she's singing to Eric on the beach, and then when the waves crash behind her as she belts it out. That's the belter. That's when you can belt.
0: Yeah, you're totally right. And all the stuff of her on the rock as well just made me think of the Little Mermaid statue in Copenhagen, which Sam, you and I have visited together basically we went to copenhagen a couple of years ago we mean basically we were together <laughs>
1: so we, we did we were literally together <laughs> we we shared a hotel like we were there was no basically about it then
0: okay, yeah we were together i was trying Go to on. remember the exact moment but we did see the statue right it's small it's a small yeah. statue
1: yeah it's a small moment
0: okay so you saying that this is the best song means that you think it's better than under the sea and that is where this i'm is like correct. this is where i'm tripping up Because Under the Sea is, you know, that's the one. That is the one they play over the end credits because they're like, if people want to hear any of these songs again, it's Under the Sea. It's crazy catchy. It is an explosion of color and bubbles and dancing and this incredible melody and all these different fish and the cop plays the harp and all of that. This is just a joyous, joyous
1: sequence, and
0: I don't know, I think this might be the number one for me.
1: I mean, look, there's so many elements of Under the Sea that we need to discuss. Well, basically, for me, the discussion that we're about to have is going to fall into two categories. Okay, One, the sheer number of guys on display in this (laughs) sequence. By guys, you mean
0: like fish and weird creatures and just weird little guys in that sense. Yeah.
1: And two, I have a long series of notes about what this song is and what it's trying to achieve and how it works thematically in this movie. Um, So what do you want to do first?
0: Let's start with the Hot Crustacean Band.
1: (laughs) That's my favourite lyric in Under the Sea. There's a lot of good ones, but I think Hot Crustacean Band is... It feels so good as you say it. Hot crustacean band.
0: (laughs) Who's your favourite weird little guy? Because for me, I think it might be the Sturgeon and the Ray.
1: Oh, they get the urge and start to play. Well, because I think I'm going to need to look them up because I have two written down who I think might possibly be Disney-versity legends. Okay. That's how strongly I feel about these two guys. (laughs) I'm going to need to look up the Sturgeon and the Ray now, which is going to be quite hard to (laughs) Google. Because there's probably just sturgeons and rays. Well,
0: while you're looking for that, can I guess?
1: Oh, you guess my two. Okay, I'm looking at the sturgeon and the ray. They're pretty good. They're pretty good. But you you guess my well, two. Because the other one that I really liked and that I wrote down in my notes
0: is one of them, I mean, there's not just one, but the sea snail, the chorus of sea snails. Are they possible Disney University Legends for you? Not on my list. Okay, so but... who's on your list
1: then? Okay, my big two are the new two players, The Flute. I'm looking it up. Yeah, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of this. The newt who plays the flute, who's just a really, like, daffy character. He already doesn't belong because he's a newt. Traditionally, I don't know, a newt <laughs> amphibious, you would think traditionally a land animal. So he already looks a bit out of place, but he also just looks like he's out of a Looney Tunes cartoon or something. He's just a very kind of cool, laid-back, wacky guy, just playing away on that flute. Are you looking I'm, at the picture? I'm looking at
0: him, and do you know what? I'm torn because I don't want to steal your joy away from you, but I... I don't love the newt playing the flute.
1: Okay, I find that bizarre, (laughs) but... Oh, wow,
0: somebody's made like a statue of the newt who plays the flute, and he's like blasting out a little musical bubble from his flute.
1: I mean, this sounds like, I'll be honest, Ben, I know I'm not even finished, but this sounds like a Twitter poll. (laughs) We'll put up four (laughs) characters from under the sea and see who's the favorite. Sure thing, so
0: go on our Twitter, buy tickets to the live show, and then vote in our poll of whether the newt plays the flute is a disney versity legend i i don't know man I, I think we're gonna need we'd need an absolute landslide victory in order for that to win okay
1: okay so we've got so we've got the sturgeon in the rear we've got the new plays the flute i'm also plumping for the fluke who is the duke of soul
0: oh he's really cool and he, he's got a big deep yeah. voice and he's like
1: this oh, is the fluke is the duke of soul and he goes yeah, um I think visually modeled, I think on Duke Ellington. Oh, okay, and yeah, he plays a plays a saxophone. He just he gets sort of extra prominence. Like all the other guys are like, um oh, this is the instrument that this animal plays. But the fluke is the Duke of Soul. That's who he is. That's his identity, right down to his core. He's an Under the Sea legend. Like he's a legend in the world of the Little Mermaid. Everybody knows him. Great guy. But okay, maybe we'll not induct any of these yet. Maybe we'll we'll put them on Twitter. Mm-hmm. We'll ask people to select a winner. But can I get a commitment from you that one of the characters from the band... It doesn't have to be one of the ones that I've mentioned. Okay. You can maybe introduce a couple. One of the characters from the band can be a Disney-versity legend.
0: Yeah, okay. but uh, And I have a, I have a different Disney-versity legends candidate for further down the line. But, uh, okay, okay, so I think mine on that front would probably be actually the, the sea snails. I love the sea snails. Okay. We'll come back to it.
1: We'll sort that out in the court of public opinion.
0: I mean, this song, there's so much going on in it. And I think I love the fact that... As I mentioned at the start, it's an explosion of colour not just because of all the fish and the weird little guys, but also the whole sea changes colour through the course of this musical number. So much of the underwater stuff here is true to life, it's like big and blue, like the ocean is, but in this musical number the whole colour palette brightens, the sea becomes this like pastel orangey pink, and I think you just feel the energy that you get from that. You feel what Sebastian is saying. Everything is better down where it's wetter. I'll take it from him. And
1: this, Ben, this is where my next point on Under the Sea comes from. You believe Sebastian, right? You, Under the Sea looks great. You know, it's the, definitely the catchiest song in the movie, arguably the most popular song in the movie, for a reason. It feels like a party. I want to be under the sea. And I think there's an irony in the lyrics for the human audience where it's like, oh yeah, they're making fun of the surface world and we don't really like the surface world either, right? Like The
0: human world, it's a mess, Sam, and I, I'm not going to argue with that.
1: Yeah, but that is not what Ariel wants. This is not what Ariel believes. So there's a tension... In the whole movie that is kind of very much centralised in this song, between the movie's need, narratively, to depict life under the sea as both vibrant and appealing, so that it's an escape for the human audience, we enjoy spending time there because it's where most of the movie is set, but it's also something that Ariel wants to escape from, right? so this is in contrast to how other natural paradises other sort of arcadia settings are depicted in disney films things like the jungle book or winnie the pooh or bambi these beautiful natural wonderlands are something that the are a place where the audience likes to spend time and they're also as i said before something the hero is reluctant to leave behind as he enters the world of humanity or the world of adulthood in the case of christopher robin and bambi right and this song Is kind of in conflict with that because it's sort of like Hakuna Matata as well I would put into this category where it's a a hugely appealing song but it's message is contrary to what the characters want and to what the audience should want. We don't want Simba to tit about in the jungle forever, we want him to go back and fight Scar. We don't want Ariel to stay under the sea, we want her to get what she wants which is to leave. So yeah, I just think there's a conflict there that isn't quite resolved. This isn't why I think it's not as good as part of your world, um, but I think it's interesting to discuss. And Ariel herself is disinterested in this song; she leaves halfway through. And if you're the audience watching it, having a great time, it's a bit like why, why, why is Ariel? Why is Ariel going? Why would Ariel not want to spend time under the sea? And I think it's because Sebastian's rhetoric revolves mainly around describing how fish will be eaten. <laughs> <laughs> That's most of how the song tries to convince Ariel. Oh, you shouldn't go to the surface because um, they would eat me and, and my friends. I'm not going to eat you, though. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. that fish are delicious. I ate fish today. I ate fish a couple of days ago. I uh, had a great time at Shrimp and Grill in Leicester <laughs> Square.
0: The restaurant formerly known as Bubba Gump Shrimp has
1: sadly been de-gumped. <laughs> Um, yeah, so Ariel's not bothered about that, evidently. She doesn't care that humans eat fish. She knows that humans eat fish. Um, she still wants to go there. She is, she is privileged as a half-human, half-fish. She holds a privilege above other fish in that she is not presumably delicious. Probably the fish half of her is delicious. I don't know. What do you think? Ben you're grimacing, am uh, I getting into dicey territory here? I
0: mean, I don't want to eat any of Ariel and I feel quite comfortable saying that. I mean I'm not even, I don't even eat much fish. Just fish and chips, really. <laughs> I mean you'd eat Sebastian though. Oh, no, I don't like crab. Would eat
1: flounder? Uh, oh, would you eat flounder? I,
0: honestly, I wouldn't eat any of them, really. Uh, maybe some of the shrimps. There's some shrimps. Would you, you eat Ursula? Big? Do you like calamari? I love calamari. No, no, not a calamari fan. Especially the calamari where it literally is just like a little wiggly tentacle. Oh, not my thing. I would devour
1: Ursula. Sam. I mean, that's a. <laughs> Fish are friends, not food. Okay? <laughs> this feels like another Twitter poll. Would you eat <laughs> oh, Ariel's God. tail? Would you eat the bottom half of Ariel? It's <laughs> okay, no. no. Maybe not. <laughs>
0: oh, I can't believe you brought us to this place, Sam. I can't, can't believe we're here. But look, I think what we're doing in that sequence is the exoticism we feel of the underwater world is what Ariel is feeling about the human world. I feel like that uh-huh. sequence is for us as the audience rather than for the characters because it's for us to indulge in that world. And also for us... To understand that, hey, like Ariel's desire to go up to the land—that's something she she believes in. She's really passionate about. Like she has stuff that she wants that isn't connected to Eric. Eric becomes a part of that, but I don't think he is the whole thing. And I think what that song does is just really establish that Ariel just wants different things, and that that's okay, and that it's for the rest of the kingdom. We'll get there, but the end of this movie isn't really ariel and eric it's ariel and triton and triton understanding he Mm. has to let ariel go and he can't push his wants onto her he has to let her go where she's going to be happy and part of the journey to that point is this song of like but look at all the cool stuff under the sea and her going like i i know but like that's not what i want and you have to understand that she doesn't change in this movie Triton changes in what he wants for Ariel and his understanding of her. Which, I mean, yeah, we'll get to more of that, but that's that's my feelings on this song. Also, just a banger.
1: I completely agree. I just would like to reiterate that I think Ariel should maybe try, now that she's part of the royal family and passed some legislation outlawing the eating of fish. Because... Sebastian is still getting chased by the chef like that's one of the last beats in the film is Sebastian getting chased by the chef This tension between human and animal doesn't end with Eric and Ariel's marriage It's not Romeo and Juliet where all the fish and the people get together and they're like, ah, well forget about our divisions We still want to eat fish
0: It would be one thing for Ariel to be a better ally to the underwater community The fact that they get the maniacal chef to cater their wedding? That's cruel. That's an insane decision. Just get a different chef.
1: Madness. <laughs> I mean, that's a song, isn't it? That's a song and a half. <laughs> get a different chef who does and meet I'm, the I'm, fish. <laughs> I'm, I was talking about
0: Les Poissons. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's talk about some lyricism here, Sam. Let's talk about peak lyrics. Yeah. Les Poissons. <laughs> les Poissons. Hee hee he- hee. <laughs> ho ho ho. <laughs> Chef's kiss to that chef.
1: What an underrated song. Maybe not as a tune, but as a moment. Like, that's part of the back half of the movie that everyone forgets. Maybe part of it is just, like, kids get bored when you're watching a VHS and you don't make it through the whole movie, but Le Poisson seems to have been really forgotten. That Guy who's voicing that chef is giving it his all, man. Le poisson, le poisson.
0: He, he, he. Oh, oh, oh.
1: he's all <laughs> over the map, man. He's crazy. Oh, he's going for it. And that
0: sequence has a bit of an edge and danger to it. I think, again, we think of this as being, like, cozy, quote-unquote, girly princess movie, but this is a sequence with, like, fish's heads being chopped off and the fire and the danger of the kitchen... It injects a little bit of edge to this film, I think, the uh, Poisson sequence.
1: It's also in the lineage of the classic Disney princess movie moment where the sidekick has to run away from a predator. That would get uh, most prominently in Cinderella. But it's better than that because it's got a mad chef.
0: But while we're on the subject of dangerous sequences, dangerous songs, let's talk, one, about Poor Unfortunate Souls. And let's use that as our way in to Ursula, which, I mean, come on, talk about iconic Disney villains. She's way up there, way
1: up there. And worth noting that, as of the time of recording this week, we lost Pat Carroll. Yeah. The voice of Ursula, who gives a hell of a performance in this film and every other appearance of Ursula ever. All the Kingdom Hearts games, for one, uh, loads of park stuff, really gives it our all, and sets the tone for, you know, people like again aside, sets the tone for the the flamboyant uh, camp Disney villains to follow in the renaissance, and Poor Unfortunate Souls is at the centre of that. And it's a busy song, it's an efficient song. You know, as said before, Howard Ashman very much is a proponent of the idea that songs in a musical should do something, they should get a job done, and this song introduces Ariel to Ursula, and explains the entire scenario that's going to fuel the rest of the movie like the whole contract the losing your voice thing it's all explained in one amazing number and it's a catchy tune as well
0: yeah this is a really strong villain number and i think there's a lot of shades here because my feeling watching this was that ursula is presenting herself as like look no one likes me i don't care i can help you out this is the way that I do that. And you might not like it, but I'm me. I don't really care. And I can give you what you want if you want that. Okay. And we, I think we later find out there is more of a wrinkle to that than she presents this early on because of the weird little gribbly worm things and the way that she actively interrupts Ariel's quest to get that true love's kiss within three days. But I think it's interesting the way she sets herself up as a slightly not noble character because she, I don't think she feels nobility in what she's doing. She's just like, hey, I'm a person
1: who can make things happen and I've been ostracized and I'm me. So your description of Ursula there, I think, is very accurate and very apt because I think it ties into one of the other thematic readings that we can do of this film, which is this film as a queer narrative and Ursula and I think Ariel as well as queer coded characters. Ursula very overtly queer coded especially from a modern perspective now that um, things like drag are a lot more mainstream but at the time Ursula very closely based on Divine the drag queen who was most known for her absolute gonzo performances in John Waters movies. Howard Ashman came from Baltimore where Waters and Divine were making their films so he was very familiar uh, as well as obviously being a gay man himself with Divine and with the drag milieu and the way that you've just described Ursula as this character who is ostracized from society but in her own world and unfazed by that and unbothered by that and not at all concerned with assimilating in society in many ways I think does make her a kind of queer icon to say nothing of the fact that well i don't think we've really gotten into it before but i think there's a lot of queer readings to be made of a lot of disney movies because so many of them and animated movies in general are about outcasts who need to decide whether or not they want to assimilate into society whether they want to perform what society thinks they should be or whether they want to be themselves and that is core to the experiences of a lot of queer people And a lot of these movies involve bodily transformation as well. So there's that sense of fluidity, that sense of non-conformity in that. And, you know, with Ariel, this is a story about somebody wanting to be part of a different world. It's something that you can see... It reads true from a queer perspective that you look at these worlds, you look at these, um, for example, gay scenes in whatever town you live in, or if you live in a small town, you might look at big cities, like classically San Francisco, for example, as a place where I want to go in the world that I want to be a part of so that I can be myself in a way that I can't in the town that I've grew up in, or in a way that I can't around my family, with Triton representing those familial pressures in this sense. And I think, and we'll talk about the original story more later, but I think this is present in the Anderson version as well. I alluded to it before, but there is a lot of evidence to suggest that Hans Christian Anderson is, or was, bisexual. And there is a very clear reading of a lot of his stories, but I think in particular The Little Mermaid, that this is about him trying to... Most of his stories are autobiographical in some sense, and and you can make a reading of The Little Mermaid that it's about him trying to come to terms with these dual natures that he has. This is a story that has been shepherded into being by a lot of people, but most prominently by two queer men in the shape of Hans Christian Andersen and Howard Ashman, so I think of all of Disney's movies to to this point... It's the queerest, and Ursula is a, even though she's the villain, she's again a very compelling character, a character whose attitude is very appealing, a character who's obviously been wronged by mer society, and therefore I think is in many ways... A positive representation of queerness even though she is the villain if that makes sense
0: i think that's why and so much of it comes through in this song as well because of how expositional it is about what this transaction is that's taking place but we i think as the audience are supposed to want what ariel wants for herself we're supposed to want her to succeed on land and just understand that the price that she's having to pay to Ursula for that of giving up her voice is not a good price to pay. That is not a thing that we should be cheering her on for, but that what she wants, the only way she's really gonna make that happen is by taking this really dangerous gamble. So we want her to take that risk, really. We as the audience think it'll be it could be it could be worth it. The other thing is I love that when the spell is being cast, when that is happening, we transition from purple colors all the purple of ursula to the classic disney villain green big spectral green claws that take ariel's voice super maleficent the other thing i didn't remember is that that classic shot of ariel kind of bursting out of the water and flipping her hair back is when she's not a mermaid that is the birth of human ariel this really iconic moment that i assume is her kind of splashing about with her mermaid tail <laughs> its actually her all legged up.
1: It's a really intense transformation sequence as well, like to the extent that they can get away with in this movie there's a rip, like you see her tail rip to become her legs and there's like a <laughs> sound, it's quite deep in the mix I think, but it's it's there, I mean that's a, a moment that is um, very visceral in the Anderson as well, which we'll <laughs> definitely get to.
0: <laughs> well that's the other thing as well, towards the end of the film when Ursula has become Vanessa but then re-reveals herself as Ursula when Ursula like bursts out of Vanessa's body that is amazing it's really intense but like she Vanessa sort of rips and all the tentacles come like unfurling out from the middle and she kind of like bursts out of her I was like
1: whoa (laughs) and then there's a terrifying shot of her crawling along the deck of the ship at speed with like dragging her squid body behind her with her hands while we're in Ursula's world, a couple of things to touch on before we move on. Uh, she's got a freak farm. She's got a little <laughs> collection of TGLFs, much like we're a crew in ourselves. Yes. Who can blame her for I that? Know, as
0: soon as I saw those, I was like, that is the epitome of a truly disgusting little freak. These weird little yep. weirdy
1: guys. <laughs> she's got a whole bunch of them. And also, Flotsam and Jetsam, I hate them. They've got terrifying <laughs> voices. There's no need for those characters to speak. I think every time I watch the movie, I forget that they speak. But well, they do, and their voices are awful, and uh, Ariel was right to murder them. <laughs> <laughs> Eel's delicious. Uh, I don't eat eel. No, I don't go in for eel either. You know, you're really not a seafood no. guy. Maybe it's because you watch this movie so much right. when you're a kid. this,
0: and Nemo, and Ponyo. Look, Sam, we just should leave the fish alone. They don't come into our world unless we drag them here. I don't want to
1: be part of that world. I'd love a bit of tempura, your Sam. That would just be... Mwah. No! No!
0: <laughs> Uh, There's tempura vegetables, and the thing that you actually want is the crispy batter, you know? Okay, so we've talked about the big characters, right? And there are some great big characters here. Obviously, Ursula is an icon. But for me, I think the thing that sets this film apart and that marks the beginning of this exciting new era for the studio is that the side characters here, the supporting characters, are like bang, 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 knockout. Tons of great ones. But I think one of those gets lost in the conversation rather unfairly and maybe deserves to be a Disney Bears 2 legend. So there's so much talk about Sebastian, obviously, and he leads musical numbers and he's got quite an active role in the film. Flounder gets spoken about and merchandised way more considering he's actually a really minor part of this film. And also that he sucks. I think he sucks. He's a bit of a thumper. (laughs) He's a bit of a, like child character who's going to be like we're talking
1: about the kid things and you're like you don't you don't need to be in this movie he doesn't need to speak, I think they, they need that character for Ariel to talk to that's why Flounder's there because you need someone for her to vocalise her thoughts to, but they get it right in Aladdin because Abu can't speak mm, yeah, And that's that's what they put in a Pocahontas as well, like they improve on, on Flounder in the future because he doesn't need to speak <laughs> and he shouldn't because he's bad but you know
0: who does speak? and is incredible, and deserves all of his merchandise, and has won a place in my heart. Scuttle. Scuttle. I love Scuttle. You're a Scuttle guy. He's just a daffy seagull. He's a real doofus. He's got big Uncle Waldo energy.
1: Yeah, I guess he does. Oh, you think he's mortal? Because that would explain a lot. If uh, (laughs) Scuttle is just absolutely smashed the whole way through the movie, that would explain a lot. Yeah,
0: translation for any American listeners, mortal is northeast slang for drunk,
1: I do think Scuttle is mortal in the sense that I think he will one day die. Oh, Scuttle um, never but dies. I'm questioning whether or not he's blackout drunk. For most of he the was reason.
0: like the midpoint between Uncle Waldo. And the Albatross from The Rescuers. Orville. Uh, He was just an absolute comedy icon. And there were so many moments in this film where I was just cracking up whenever he was on screen. I mean, the whole Dinglehopper thing was hilarious. The bit where Ariel is talking about how much she fancies Eric. And he's like, oh, he's kind of hairy and slobbery. And he's talking about Max. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's a classic joke, yeah.
0: <laughs> Even the way he like, pulls Eric's eyes wide open to like see if he's alive and is looking for a heartbeat in the foot. Scuttle is just the best thing about this movie maybe uh, maybe there's a bit much but i mean when he's standing on ariel's legs and he's like hmm there's something different here and he can't figure
1: out what it is again classic sort of vaudeville humor but he's just a flying doofus his batting vocals and kiss the girl are great as well he's... <laughs> <laughs> and he
0: even proceeds kiss the girl because he's doing the he's trying to cheer them up with a song with a
1: wow 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 wow
0: you weren't as captured by scuttle as i was
1: i like scuttle a lot i'll let him in the legend right hall of fame i mean i think we're getting to an era of this show where we're gonna have to start digging deeper for the legends because the smaller characters in these movies are more iconic like is there a single character in the lion king who isn't iconic you know i don't think so Scuttle is yes, Scuttle's the one from *The Little Mermaid*. Of those characters with lines, if we don't want to, you know, if we don't want to go quite as deep as the Duke of Soul, (laughs) then um, I will allow that Scuttle is definitely kind of the dark horse of the uh, Little Mermaid he cast. He feels
0: like a Disneyversey legend to me, because he's gone so forgotten. I don't know why he just isn't really a part of what's remembered about this film, when, for me, he was the mm-hmm. funniest thing in it. He was in it way more than some of the other characters who we remember and talk about a lot more
1: than, than him. I guess it's because he's kind of ugly. Sebastian and Flounder. I can't picture a toy of Scuttle. I want one. I'm gonna Google yeah. it.
0: Come on, if there is a Scuttle
1: beanbag... I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> All right, well, if I do find anything, I'm going to keep it to myself so that I can uh, get it for later for a surprise. Well,
0: for now, can we make it official? Yeah, go on, Ben. Scuttle is an official Disneyverse legend to be joined by some underwater guy down the line based on the. Yeah, you Twitter know call. who would
1: have done a great version of that fanfare, the Duke of Saul? <laughs> he would have really, really put a spin on it. <laughs>
0: But what do you make of the other supporting characters here then? So we've, we've spoken about Flounder. Sebastian mm-hmm. is tons of fun.
1: Yeah, I mean, he is that side character who was so fleshed out that he's kind of the heart of the movies. Like, so if our if our Snow White is now Ariel, like so many steps above, then our Grumpy has to be even better as well. We'll have to push even further with those supporting characters. And that is our sebastian he's got depth he has like we talked about how triton's arc is kind of coming to accept ariel sebastian's journey to accepting what ariel wants and deciding to help her instead of hinder her is really well done and there's some subtlety there i mean so, so sebastian is basically a, an ashman invention as well there was going to be a kind of stuffy english crab butler character and ashman decided that he should be jamaican and he should sing majority of the songs so another thing about Ashman and Mencken is they play with genre a lot I mean their only uh, collaboration before this really was Little Shop but that's like a pastiche of Phil Spector, Motown kind of 50s 60s rock and roll and here he wanted to do some Calypso pastiches so okay let's make the crab Jamaican that's our way in.
0: Did they find someone Jamaican or with Caribbean heritage to voice this role? Because that was the one thing that I was worried about while I was watching it. Of just like, this is such a fun performance. Is it okay to enjoy this performance, or are there elements of it that are uncomfortable these days?
1: He is voiced by an African-American man called Samuel E. Wright. So it's not a white guy, which would have been the worst thing that it could have been, but it is an African-American man approximating a Jamaican accent, so... Yeah, your mileage may vary. I think on how problematic that is, and of course the the, the music is all um, pastiche, you know. So it's two white guys writing calypso songs as well. It wouldn't have happened today if the movie was not made today. They would have got if they wanted to go that direction. They would have had Jamaican people give their input on the songs and voice the character.
0: And very briefly, we've spoken about under the sea, but we haven't really talked about kiss the girl, which is Sebastian's kind of other big song and pivotal to trying to get to the aim of the film, which is Ariel and Eric kissing. That, to me, it was like, it obviously had the Calypso stuff going on, but kind of meets 80s soft pop, like, <laughs> Oliver and Company vibes.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good song. I mean, you know that I like it, It's soft pop, but um, I like Kiss the Girl a lot. I don't know, maybe it's just because Under the Sea is so ubiquitous, it's a bit overplayed, but for me, Kiss the Girl is, like, almost level with Under the Sea. The lyrics obviously aren't as good, but I think it's a really cool little smooth jam. And I love the backing vocals. It's a beautiful sequence floating in a blue lagoon.
0: Reminded me visually of the Blue Bayou sequence from one of the package movies. It yeah. felt like there was a bit of Mary Blair element in those backgrounds as well of, of the sort of mm. hanging leaves. And it felt like a classic date sequence that you need in one of these movies, like the one in Cinderella that she has with the prince before she has to leave the ball, and Lady and the Tramp when they go for their walk through the park. You need to send these characters off to give the audience a sense that there's some substance of the fact that they've spent some time together and have a bit of chemistry together.
1: Yeah, this is the moment where Eric falls for Ariel, and where Ariel really falls for Eric as a person rather than as an idea. Yeah, and it's facilitated by Sebastian, because he wants to help Ariel now. He's had that change of heart. Sebastian is a character sort of embodies that same contradiction that I think Under the Sea embodies, whereby he is a stuffy disciplinarian, but he's also a fun-loving party dude. He's like Baloo and Bagheera, mashed into one character, <laughs> like he plays both roles. But I think it works with Sebastian because he's just so well characterized by the writers and the and the actor.
0: Another small possibility for a Disney Disneyverse legend, the frogs on the oar. The frog chorus. Ooh, I love those frogs. Oh, now
1: you're speaking my language and my language is... <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sam loves a
1: frog. Put little outfits on them and they're in.
0: <laughs> so you write in that this sequence is giving them some time together and setting up that Eric likes Ariel and they enjoy spending time together. And then how quickly that is betrayed (laughs) when let's just lay this out ariel is still sleeping in eric's castle in his house possibly in his bed when he's suddenly like i'm engaged to this other woman (laughs) (laughs) who is as we know vanessa ursula in disguise who is using ariel's voice to kind of attract eric there's a whole shakespearean thing of he remembers her voice from the beach But then she has to give up her voice to be on land, so then he doesn't know that it's still her, so he's looking for the voice. Vanessa has the voice, and immediately he's like, okay, well, I'm going to go with her, even though I spent several days chilling with Ariel.
1: I think there's been a bit of focus group kind of led edits on this because, yes, we are initially believing that the only reason why he's chosen... Vanessa over Ariel is because he's obsessed with this woman who he thinks saved him and and her beautiful voice which Vanessa has But when they get married on the boat, he's hypnotized. He's a zombie He's not reacting to anything that's happening. And I think that's being put in after the fact I think they've had notes that Eric becomes unsympathetic if he is just absolutely ditched ariel for this other woman so there needs to be this kind of tacked on hypnosis element come
0: on at least talk to her first don't just like she wakes up and he's like oh i'm downstairs with my new fiance (laughs) it's like dude what are you doing also in that sequence when ariel runs down the stairs that to me stood out as like the one random 3d shot of the movie of Ariel running down the stairs. I'm sure there's going to be much more where that came from.
1: Uh, well, there's some boat stuff earlier on, traced boats that were rendered in the computer near the start. But, see, you wouldn't notice it, but this film does feature a single shot, which I think is the very last shot of the movie, um, while the rainbow spreads across the sky, which uses a system that would soon become indispensable called CAPS, which stands for Computer Animation Production System. And rather than being one program, this is a suite of uh, tools that were developed by Disney in collaboration with Pixar, by the way, who at this point are basically a tech company. They're making animation to demonstrate their technology, but what they're producing is computer animation software. So they make this CAPS system which is a set of tools which basically allow for animation cells to be scanned and edited, coloured and composited with computer generated imagery. Sort of like an advancement on the multiplane camera in a computer. And the rescuers down under makes heavy, heavy use of that software and it'll become very apparent when you watch that. But that does become a ubiquitous part of the visual palette. Of the Disney Renaissance and there's one shot which is almost imperceptible at the end that was composited using caps.
0: I'm intrigued to find out more about how that works when we do the Rescuers Down Under episode then. But for now, what do you make of this finale Sam? We get, as we mentioned before, Ursula bursting out of Vanessa's body and then something I'd forgotten about entirely which is giant Ursula, like Kaiju Ursula, And this big action finale that we have had a lot of action finales in these Disney movies, but they tend to be chase sequences. And this was less of a chase sequence than a boss battle.
1: Yeah, a boat fighting the giant Ursula it was. A, a, by the way, I have to mention Ursula, hardest boss fight in the original Kingdom Hearts, right. in my opinion. So, and it's it's giant Ursula in in that game as well. But you're shooting her with a magic key rather than impaling her on the uh, front end of a ship. Oh my God, Eric, absolutely shanks her with this boat.
0: He's like, I'm just going to stab her.
1: That's a grisly villain death. It's up there with Sykes getting electrocuted on the subway and ran over by a train. Because
0: Ursula also gets struck by lightning after she's been impaled and her skeleton like (laughs)
1: flashes up through her body when she's struck by the lightning. I was like, whoa. (laughs) Yeah, truly Rasputinian. Like, can she get any more (laughs) dead?
0: Yeah, this feels like an exciting ending to me. It was nice to see a different kind of ending to a Disney movie that has this sense of scale. It reminded me a bit of the end of Sleeping Beauty as well, where Maleficent turns into the dragon. And again, it's just another thing where if we're talking in very stereotypical terms of being a quote-unquote girls movie, I think the big boss battle, Ursula, is just like a big exciting action thing that doesn't have particularly gendered appeal.
1: Yeah, apart from the fact that it's Eric who does it. The agency in that final fight is with Eric. Ariel is very briefly, but very palpably, rendered a damsel in distress. On a couple of occasions, actually, because Triton has to save her from being a little seaweed freak as well. Yeah, he gets
0: gremlin'd towards the end. But for all of about five minutes, it's it's like Sleeping Beauty getting cursed, falling asleep forever for five minutes. And then then she wakes up again. That's the thing, I, I think, as I mentioned before, for me, the ending here, right... We have that really nice moment where uh, Ursula's been defeated and Ariel's got her voice back and Eric's realised that it was Ariel's voice all along. You have that nice moment where they kiss on the beach and it's like a match cut or the scene transitions around them to their wedding day kiss. But the ending, the learning and the changing is about Triton and the last bit of the film after the marriage and after the kiss is her saying to him, I love you daddy. And that is the emotional ending here. I thought Mm. that was an interesting note to end on. But still, my theory is that Triton has still got some grievances because he has got to battle that chef guy, the maniacal chef who's trying to kill Sebastian right until the very end. Sam, there is a sequel to this film, I'm going to bet right now, that it's Triton versus the horrible chef. That's a short battle. (laughs) (laughs) Impaled. There's a lot of impaling in this film. Why not another one? Right then, now that we're back on dry land, that brings us to Discarded, the section of the show where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from and dig up all the dark, weird stuff that didn't make the finished film. Sam, we have a Hans Christian Andersen story. You've already mentioned that bits got cut here and there of songs what are we looking at at Discarded this time around?
1: Yeah, I mean, on the songs front, there was there was things that have been shortened um, from Ashman's original versions. You can hear all, all of those are on YouTube, I think. Ashman's demos for the songs on these films that he worked on are very widely available. And you get to hear him do the character voices. His Ursula is spectacular. So i definitely go in and check the full versions of, of songs like Fathoms Below out. But the meat of this is, is the Hans Christian Andersen stuff. The delicious fish meat is Hans Christian Andersen because, my word. So there is a lot more lore in the Hans Christian Andersen version of this story. There's a lot of um very specific rules around what mermaids are and what they can and can't do, and just biologically and spiritually <laughs> how they work. Is it
0: law that there are mer- people who are the head of a fish and human legs?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, that's given me three caballeros flashbacks, <laughs> oh and I'm God. not complaining. No, don't go back there, Sam. You're back in the room, you're with me. Okay, so, humans have shorter lifespans than mermaids. Mermaids live a lot longer than okay. humans. But human souls live on forever in heaven. Whereas mermaids can live for 300 years, but when they die, they have no soul, they turn to form, and they're gone forever.
0: Poor unfortunate souls. Holy crap.
1: Yeah, so the little mermaid, who is not named in this, is this time after A, a human prince, but B, an eternal soul. That's what she wants. That's her I want song. She wants this bloke that she fancies, but she also wants a soul so that she can go to heaven when she dies.
0: I want to find an eternal soul. Make it so <laughs> I can get to heaven. They could
1: have done that. Just saying. So there's a bit more to it. Like I was saying, like Ariel's kind of dual nature as mermaid and human is a lot more at the forefront in this version, which I do think arguably reflects some of... Christine Anderson's personal struggles. So, in kind, the City Witch's spell has a lot more conditions, okay? It's a much longer contract (laughs) than the one that Ariel signs. So yes, she's taking her voice, but also, growing legs is going to feel like she's getting sliced in half by a sword oh specified that's what it's going to feel like this is a lot like the froget scene in the simpsons sort of like oh that's bad oh that's good so grown legs will feel like she's getting sliced in half by a sword that's bad the mermaid will be able to dance like no human has ever danced before that's good okay take it <laughs> but every step will feel like you're walking on knives that's bad But if she marries the prince, she will gain part of his soul. (laughs) That's good. If if you're not the prince, that's good if you're the mermaid. But if he marries someone else, the next day she'll die and turn to foam. So that's bad. (laughs) A lot of turning to foam. The stakes are a lot higher and there's a lot more dancing. There's barely any dancing in The Little moment. This is all dancing. Do
0: you know what, though? I If anybody could put all of those clauses and contractual elements into a song, I think it's Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. I believe they could have done it if Disney had told them. It's true. Going down the foam, soul, dancing on knives
1: route. I think they could have done it. So when she meets the prince in this one, she's completely friend-zoned. He's not really interested in her romantically at all. But he just loves to watch her dance. Because she's, she's the greatest dancer who's ever lived, and he loves that. He doesn't fancy her, but he's like, oh, man, I'll, I'll have some of that. And she's in love with him, so he's like, oh, come on, do one of your dances again. And she just keeps dancing, even though it feels like she's walking on knives. Do one of
0: your crazy walking on knives
1: dances. Ow,
0: ooh, <laughs> e- ow, ooh, uh.
1: <laughs> well, she's got no voice, you see, so he can't he can't tell that she's in agony. Yes, so a bit like in this... Uh, Although the witch isn't necessarily involved, unfortunately the prince marries somebody else. So she knows she's going to die the next day because he's married somebody else. She's going to get formed. So that night her sisters come to see her and they tell her that they have sold all of their hair to the witch. (laughs) And the witch has given them in return a magic dagger. Okay, okay so i mean this the trade-offs here really i don't see how that's equal <laughs> i don't understand the logic of, of this of this maritime law that the witch is operating under hair equals magic dagger mermaid hair
0: though it's very swooshy
1: mm, yeah that's true that beautiful glenkeen hair so all the mermaid has to do is use the magic dagger kill the prince uh, stab him up with the dagger and cover her feet in his blood and she'll turn back into a mermaid instead of Foam. I, I mean, I want that for her. We all do. But she can't go through with it. So she does the Foam thing instead. <laughs> so she just turns into Foam at the end? Yes. The ultimate FOMO. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, well, she she has FOMO. That's what the whole thing's about. She has a fear of missing out on her eternal reward in God's heaven. But now she's Foam. But... Because she tried really, really hard to get a soul, she gets rewarded instead of turning into form. Well, she does turn into form, but after that, she turns into an air spirit. So... As an air spirit, all she has to do now is spend 300 years doing good deeds for mankind and eventually she earns a soul. Which sounds like a scam. That sounds like like a pyramid scheme, you know? Like, if you do enough work, if you help some humans out for 300 years, you'll get a soul. This is a rip-off.
0: Is she still foam? How is she supposed to help people for 300 years as foam?
1: (laughs) Oh, there's lots of very helpful forms. She's like
0: sliding herself across surfaces and cleaning them as she goes.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, No, she's a spirit now. Okay. Is that why they called her Ariel? Ask a big question, get a big (laughs) answer. I haven't read this, but I think the name Ariel... I mean, the most obvious reference point is the Tempest. Ariel is the spirit from the Tempest who causes the storm which crashes the ship but then also saves the, the sailors from the ship like the Little Mermaid does with Eric. So I think possibly it's a reference to The Tempest in the Disney version. Yeah, they could have called her like for me. Um <laughs> so That would have been good too. Hans Christian Hansen's Little Mermaid, it's all over the map. There's so many contracts and clauses and deals. <laughs> She's just never out of contract, this little mermaid. She's never just free to do what she wants to do. It's always, spend 300 years doing good deeds, this, and stab the prince and wash your feet in his blood, that, in this world. I
0: want a bit more of that. Make her foam, you cowards. Okay, so even though they didn't turn Ariel into sentient foam, what did critics have to say of the Disney movie at the time? Was it a hit? I mean, I can't imagine them not enjoying this movie.
1: It was really... Really well received, yeah, by most people. So yeah, Siskel and Ebert, who are... I think we'll be talking about Siskel and Ebert quite a bit, but they're like the most influential film critics in America. We've already cited them quite a lot. They were a huge fan. Ebert called it a jolly and inventive animated fantasy, a movie that's so creative and so much fun, it deserves comparison with the best work of Disney's past. And that is a theme. Katzenberg and the marketing team were very obviously trying to place it within that lineage retroactively we know that they succeeded completely because that is how the disney renaissance has been presented ever since and that is something that the critics were already responding to i mean we'll get all the reviews that we've read of all these movies there's always somebody who wants to say that oh this is disney's back it's a new golden age for disney but um this is the one where that was mostly the consensus. Uh, Siskel thought that while the story wouldn't win any prizes from the Women's Liberation Movement, the animation is so full and colourful and the songs so beguiling um, that this is a case of where someone made one like they used to. And of course, like they used to also involves not winning prizes from the Women's Liberation Movement, Um, if we're looking at those Disney princess movies. A lot of people pointing out that this is also like a four-quadrant hit. Teenagers want to watch this movie. Teenagers didn't really want to watch Oliver and Company. Oliver and Company was a hit, but it's cute animals. This is a rom com. This is a romantic comedy. This is picking up the same audiences that Splash or Pretty Woman did. You know, it's tapping into those touchstone audiences, those audiences that were going to these films that Disney had been making, these slightly more adult, cool movies to rehabilitate their brand. That was part of Eisner's concern, that making too many animated movies, it's going to make Disney feel like has it's going to make them feel like a kiddie studio, and we want to get adults and teens in, but Little Mermaid showed that you can do all of that at once. Yeah, I found one dissenting opinion, Hal Hinson from the Washington Post, who said that it was likeably unspectacular. The Little Mermaid is only passable as a film. Even at its highest points, it cannot claim a place next to the least of the great Disney classics. So he thinks it's not even as good as The Sword and the Stone implicitly. That is wild.
0: Come on. This is leagues above or leagues below? 20,000 leagues? Whatever a good (laughs) league 20,000
1: leagues below, Sword and the Stone. Anyway. um, But I do like one of his turns of phrase. Eric has a game show blandness about (laughs) him. He's not wrong there. Game show bland. Um, So yeah, Oscar for Best Original Score. And Best Original Song for Under the Sea with Kiss the Girl also nominated. And... 84 million domestic baby Compared to Oliver and Company's 53 million, so that was considered a comeback But this is on a level that I don't think anyone really anticipated It broke records for the highest gross animated feature which Don Bluth had done in the past but that's going to become a regular occurrence for Disney. Each successive movie will will do that. And this is all despite those initial predictions that this is a girl movie. It's not going to do as well as Oliver. It's not going to do as well as Basil, because it's just for girls. And there we go. Proven wrong.
0: Well, let's see if this isn't just a girl movie, Sam. What did you think of it? What did I think of it? You go first.
1: Yep, yeah, it's great. It's not my favourite. So, okay, we're about to hit a pretty good run, Ben. We're about to hit... An unstoppable series of films, may arguably with the exception of the one we're looking at next week, but we'll see how we feel about that after a rewatch, because it, it, it does have a lot going for it. But Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, it's a hell of a stretch, and even beyond, some pretty good movies. I think Little Mermaid suffers only by comparison to those three movies, which really build on and refine the formula, and because of the integration of caps, among other things, increased budgets as well just look a lot better too. This movie still kind of looks like Oliver and Company or Basil, I think. It doesn't have quite the sumptuous beauty of the later Renaissance films, in my opinion. So, it's my least favourite of those four absolutely exceptional five-star movies. It suffers only by comparison to those.
0: Yeah, I think I'm going to go four and a half here. This is a brilliant film the songs are incredible the characters are so expressive and it's a great overall cast of characters as, as we talked about in the main discussion and to me I'm sure there's more lavish stuff to come but this does look like a beautiful movie and it does feel of a piece with what Disney was doing back in the day there are moments with the kind of pencil shaded ocean stuff that took me back to Pinocchio and It's not as wild in its animation, but it does feel like Disney is really back in territory that just feels super classic for them. I can imagine this felt like classic Disney at the time, and it still feels like classic Disney now. This feels like so many of the hallmarks of what you think of when you think of a Walt Disney Animation Studios movie, and done really, really well. It is a great watch, it zips along. The stuff that you remember is just as good as you remember it. The stuff that you've forgotten is more interesting than you didn't remember it. So yeah, big thumbs up from me. I had a great time watching this. And it's made me even more excited to get back into the upcoming Renaissance movies as we go. Finally, it is time for the part of the show we like to call Lasting Legacy. Because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. And in the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there is a whole universe out there for each character. And Sam, you've already teed it up. There is a significant wider Little Mermaid
1: universe, isn't there? What can you tell us? So these movies, these kind of four movies that I've just mentioned, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, were such big hits, have so many great characters especially like we've just said that they are endless fountains of spin-offs and merchandise and i mean it's it's so much like all of these episodes are going to have huge legacy sections because there's a lot of it and a lot of it is really weird and interesting (laughs) so i don't even know where to start um okay parks first it's pretty much what you would expect there's like a dark ride called aerials undersea adventure that's at quite a few of the parks pretty standard It's got a pretty creepy aerial animatronic that looks like it's being held hostage. Like it looks like she's being like tied to the wall and forced to interact with these visitors. Yeah, it's fine. Tokyo Disney Sea, there's a little mermaid lagoon area, which looks incredible. Everything at that park is like so detailed and beautiful. What
0: is Disney Sea? Is that like
1: a Disney World oh, okay. on the
0: water? What's what's going on there?
1: So it's a put on Disneyland. So at, right. at Tokyo, they've got Disneyland, and then the plan was to make Disney Sea and Disney Air, but they only ended up doing Disney Sea. But Tokyo Disney Sea is generally considered the best Disney theme park by the real parkheads in the world. So it's based around different waterfronts from around the world, but also all of Disney's water-based movies. There's a lot of Pirates of the Caribbean, a lot of 20,000 Leagues, and a lot of Little Mermaids. So it gets a tall area in in that park, and you can go to um, Triton's Palace and Ariel's Grotto and... There's sort of carnival-style kiddie rides like Flounder's Flying Fish Coaster and Scuttle's Scooters and stuff like that.
0: Can you see the little wiggly freaks in Ursula's cave?
1: Oh, I don't know. I'll check that out. You would think so. That'd be a gimmick. We're just
0: going to have to go for ourselves, Sam. We're just going to have to go to Tokyo and find
1: out. And uh, my favourite park thing is that there used to be a restaurant in California called Ariel's Grotto, which of course was a seafood restaurant. (laughs) I mean, what else are you going to do, right? Under the sea... Under the sea, le poisson, le poisson, the chef should be dressed as Louis (laughs) and have a ludicrous French accent. Alright, okay. Let's save the sequels till last. okay. Because that's special. Okay, let's do everything apart from the sequels because that's the one where we're going to be going into the most detail. There are various video games contemporaneously released for the NES and the Sega Genesis, um, and my favourite, Little Mermaid 2 Pinball Frenzy for the Game Boy Color, <laughs> which kind of suggests that that's the title of the movie, Little Mermaid 2. That it's, it's like Little Mermaid 2 Pinball Frenzy, wow, we're taking this into a, in a different direction. That would have been a lot better. She
0: wants to go on land because on land there are arcades, and in arcades <laughs> there machines. are pinball machines, and she is some kind of
1: pinball wizard. Actually, having said that, I might be misremembering this bit of trivia, but in New York, in the kind of early 20th century, there was a big, or maybe the mid-20th century, there was a a statewide ban on pinball machines because they were seen as corrupting the youth. And a lot of the pinball machines were dumped in the sea and in the river. So somewhere in in the ocean surrounding New York, I believe there's a lot of um, abandoned pinball machines. So that would be where Ariel (laughs) refines her skills in, in Little Mermaid pinball frenzy. Under
0: the sea, under the sea. Maybe there's pinball, all these machines, and they are all free. <laughs> do, 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 do.
1: Oh, very good. Very good. Yes, okay, that's video games. Not much going on there. <laughs> Sebastian released two solo albums. Yes, okay, let's dig into this. <laughs> Sebastian released two solo albums in the 1990s. In 1990, he brought out Sebastian from the Little Mermaids. I could have come up with a better name for the album, I'm not going to lie. Okay, well, in 1991, Party Gras was the follow-up. That is Sebastian's vibe all over. That is a much better title. Pretty good, right? So, it's mostly covers of classic Calypso and reggae songs... There's a great sort of chill wave version of Jamaica Farewell by Harry Belafonte, which is already a song that I love, and Sebastian's rendition is genuinely excellent. There's also some kind of random ones in there. He does Octopus's Garden. (laughs) um, And uh, Twist and Shout, which kind of sounds like Third Wave Scar, sounds like kind of real big fish. It's Sebastian's version of Twist and Shout, all obviously voiced by Samuel Learay. So they got him back, right? They got him back, yeah okay let's stick on music because there was a Broadway musical opened in 2007 so a lot of the films that were coming to have had Broadway musical adaptations where they had a bunch of songs usually with Alan Menken's involvement and I think possibly reinstate some of the deleted Howard Ashman material from the movie like Fathoms Below but we don't care about that because there was a live televisual experience a few years ago called little mermaid live on abc and this is on disney plus as well where they showed the animated film but all of the songs were performed by live actors including auli crevalio from moana as ariel amazing great casting queen latifah as Ursula, yeah, yeah? a real dog as max <laughs> which is a highlight and um do you know this? Do you know who plays no, Sebastian? No, who's Sebastian? Really? Yeah. It's Mr. Lover Lover himself, Shaggy. Oh
0: no what? Oh,
1: yes. that's incredible. So he is dressed in sort of a red leather bodysuit like Michael is. Jackson in Billy Jean <laughs> or like Britney Spears in whatever video that was, where she wears a red leather is it who said did it again, maybe? Uh, I, don't I can't know. remember. Um, He originally had big leather crab claws on his hands. You can see photos from rehearsal (laughs) where he's wearing these big claws, but they were scrapped because they look ridiculous. That's a quote. That's not a reason to scrap the claws. It's even better if they look ridiculous. And he's also, I think he's completely absent for the Le Poisson sequence. It's just whoever's playing the chef, singing that song, not chasing Shaggy around um, in a leather (laughs) bodysuit so uh yeah so that happened that's great okay then we can segue from that into tv a lot of tv shows or cancelled. tv shows based on the little mermaid just going to rattle some things off here little mermaid's island a cancel show from the jim henson company which was going to feature a live action aerial alongside puppet fish including flounder flounder's twin sister sandy a new character And a dragon called Scales who lives in the cave and makes rock and roll music. (laughs) Uh,
0: I mean, they could have got the cop who plays the harp instead. Why are we suddenly (laughs) pivoting to a dragon?
1: And I will say this. In the dentist that I used to visit as a child, they had a picture book of The Little Mermaid, but it wasn't the story of the movie. It was a story about ariel getting into it i think it was a beach volleyball game against ursula and flotsam and jetsam and on ariel's team there was this dragon who i'd never seen before and i'm like why is there this dragon who is he? He's not from the movie. I've not seen him ever. He's from a cancelled Jim Henson TV show where he was going to be a Puppers. But he made it onto the page that already started pumping out the other supplementary promotional material for the ancillary spinoffs. So, Sebastian had his own TV spinoff. He starred in a segment of an animated anthology series called Marsupilami. Marsupilami? Um, what? Oh, you asked. Okay, so Marsupilami <laughs> is a French comic strip character he's sort of like a cross between a lemur and a leopard and disney made a cartoon series starring Lamy in the 90s but so it was like two episodes of Lamy sandwich and one episode of sebastian you would think sebastian would be the headliner the yeah. guy with the like, thousand, hundred thousands of dollars worth of box office and two albums. But he was playing second fiddle to Lamy.
0: Was this just in France? Did they like him because he was called Sebastian? <laughs> no, they.
1: this was in America. I've never seen it. I don't think it was in the UK. So most of his segments involved Tom and Jerry style kind of chair sequences with Chef Louis. But on one occasion, it involved him catching the eye of a lusty female scorpion in an episode called Basic Instinct uh let see what they did there <laughs> <laughs> okay moving on the little mermaid tv show which you might have seen this was in syndication when we were kids it ran for three seasons it was a prequel to a film about ariel's adventures before she met eric so again they've made a prequel rather than a sequel so that they can use the original Versions of the character before she gets legs. We don't want to see her adventures on land. We want to see her under the sea. Under the sea. Take it from me. Ursula isn't a big part of the show because Ariel meets her for the first time in the movie, so they had to keep her in the background. Instead, we get a villain called Evil Manta, who is an incredibly jacked human-manta-ray hybrid voiced by Tim Curry. Incredible. I'm already into it. And my favourite, the Lobster Mobster, (laughs) who is a mobster who is a lobster. And of course, he talks like Edward G. Robinson, see? It's the only voice cartoon mobsters are allowed to have. And there's original songs in the show, one of which I had in my head for days when I was researching this episode, where he's trying to get a little little mer boy to join his mob and his song goes like this you're in the lobster mobsters i'm gonna have to find this out right because
0: if anything has stayed with me since our last episode the theme that pops back into my head is that French song about Oliver and Company that isn't in the film, but there was an external... So I hope the mobster lobster lives up to... What was their name?
1: Like Anne. It was just Anne. So, yeah, that's obviously, we'll get that on Twitter, the Lobster Mobs' Mob. There is also an episode of the Little Mermaid cartoon starring as a character Hans Christian Andersen. And Hans Christian Andersen is voiced by Mark Hamill. Oh, perfect. And he's, he's weirdly sexy. <laughs> sexy Hans. Hans Christian Andersen, in real life, by all accounts, not sexy. Constantly unable to consummate his desire for men and women. Um, he just doesn't seem to have been a very attractive guy. But in this, he's sexy. He's voiced by Mark Hamill. And he is exploring the ocean in a steampunk submarine, looking for inspiration for his stories like in 19th century James Cameron. And he sees Ariel and is inspired to write a story about her, which we now know sees her hellishly tortured and murdered. <laughs> so he meets this mermaid. I think Ariel even saves him from drowning at one point. And he's like, "Ah, oh, that gives me an idea for a story. What if a mermaid? It felt pain like no man has never experienced?" <laughs>
0: And then turned into foam.
1: Yeah. Oh, yes, that's the TV show. Pant, pant, pant. It's been a marathon, but I guess now we're ready to explore the two sequels to this movie. Okay, so
0: my guess of Triton versus
1: The Chef, was I right? No, no. Damn it. uh, No. So there's two sequels, but one of them's a prequel. There are two types of Disney sequel, effectively, if we don't count Cinderella time travel adventures. There's one where we follow the heroes as kids, and there's one where the heroes have kids, and the Little Mermaid does both. So in Little Mermaid 2, Return to the Sea, not a pinball machine to be seen, Ariel visits a father with a new human daughter, and they are attacked by... (laughs) I love this bit. They are attacked by an unseen evil presence, and... We see this crazy, evil sea witch, with a very familiar laugh, Hmm. actually, emerge from the ocean. Who could this be? It seems to be the voice of of Pat Carroll, but we know her to be dead. And Sebastian shouts, oh no, it's Ursula's crazy sister! (laughs) So they've introduced a new character called Morgana, who has the exact same voice as Ursula, (laughs) is identical to Ursula except thinner and greener. And we don't know where she came from, we don't know why Ursula didn't mention her. She appears abruptly and without explanation, but we don't want to bring Ursula back, so it's Ursula's crazy sister. And she swears vengeance against the baby, Melody, she's called. So, in order to keep her safe from Morgana, she is raised without any knowledge of her mermaid heritage. A little bit like Sleep and Beauty... And how she's kind of sent away to protect her. But Melody is not allowed to go into the ocean. She's not allowed to swim. She can still talk to fish. That isn't questioned. She's still mates with Scuttle and Sebastian. But she's not allowed to swim. So it's sort of a reverse Little Mermaid. Where she's stuck on land and obsessed with the sea. And then the plot really kicks into gear. She makes a deal with the devil. The devil? Well, Morgana. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was like Chernobog? <laughs> no, It was returns? a metaphor then. <laughs> so Morgana agrees to turn her into a mermaid. In exchange for stealing Triton's trident. I don't know why she needs a little girl to steal it. Bearing in mind, Melody can't actually reveal herself to Triton. Because Triton can't know that she's a mermaid. Because she's not supposed to be in the sea. So this does not make sense as a plan from Morgana's perspective. There are much easier ways to steal the Triton than get a little girl to do it. There's an older flounder, because obviously it's quite a few years later, so we we'll see like an adult flounder with a bunch of kids, that's kind of freaky, he's got like a deeper voice, he's like a little bit bigger.
0: Does Scuttle come back? Is there fresh Scuttle content? Yeah, yes. Scuttle's in it.
1: Yeah, he's kind of a, a mentor to, to Melody, because he's, a- he's a good character for this, because he can engage with her while she's on land. I guess that's why he's a good character for Ariel as he's well. He's also
0: just a good character, Sam. He's a good character yeah, in every yeah, sense. Yeah,
1: just a good character. So, yeah, that's Little Mermaid 2. It sucks. It's bad. Um, It's crap. It's you really badly animated. There's some horrible new sidekicks. It's it's a penguin and a seal. Tip and dash, they're called. Just really tremendously irritating replacements for like Sebastian and Flounder, who befriend Melody. Yeah, really cheap animation. It sucks. It's bad. Any questions? Any, any points? Just what is left to uncover in Little Mermaid 3? Well, of course it's a prequel. Okay. Which, by the way, upsetting several nerds contradicts the events of the Little Mermaid TV show in several ways. Oh,
0: just the TV show, not the original film?
1: Just the TV show. So it's like you can either accept this as Ariel's origin or the TV show, but apparently not both. So this is the last director video sequel Disney ever made. John Lasseter pulled the plug after he took over the studio. This was the last one they did. Therefore, it looks like one of the most expensive. It's one of the most lavishly animated It's not as good as Cinderella 3. I know, what a bar. But um, it's one of the better Disney sequels that I've watched so far. So Ariel's... Okay, it's footloose. Little Mermaid, (laughs) the prequel, is footloose. Ariel's origin story is she's Kevin Bacon in footloose. Wait, so she's... She's got no feet, obviously. Oh,
0: I was going to say, is she dancing while feeling like she's got knives stabbing her feet?
1: No. Um, So Ariel's mother gets crushed by a pirate ship. We open with Ariel playing with her mother and she gets crushed to death by a pirate ship because she loves music. She drops our music box and she has to grab the music box and the pirate ship hits her. So Triton is so upset that he bans music entirely from the kingdom because it reminds him of his dead wife, which seems like an overreaction. The focal point of this movie is, on the one hand, Ariel is, likes music, and she's trying to bring it back to the kingdom. It's just another reason for Ariel and Triton to be at odds with one another, really. Rehashing that relationship a little bit, but with music instead of walking on land. What about Sebastian? Yeah, Because Sebastian right. loves music, and, but he loves Triton. He's caught in the middle here. Exactly. So Sebastian is really, in a way, the lead character in this. His job, which, by the way, what is Sebastian's job? What would you describe his job as?
0: To be a good friend of Triton and to ride alongside him in a tiny little seahorse and carriage and
1: look cool and play the music. Yeah, play the music. It's kind of a hodgepodge, right? In this, it's clarified that he is Triton's chief of staff, but this is a job that is coveted by Ariel's governess, the woman whose job it is to look after the daughters of Triton. Her name is Marina Del Rey she is played by sally field wow they got the voice cast. yeah so she wants sebastian's job so she's going to uncover sebastian's deepest darkest secret which is that he plays music in an underground speakeasy at which i think flounder is like a waiter or something like flounder's on staff <laughs> he's very familiar and all all of the guys are there all the under the sea dudes are there but sebastian is this band leader in this speakeasy music bar and he is cast out of the kingdom when triton finds this out and marina is made chief of staff and she becomes all-powerful until they make triton realize the true value of music now that's all completely by the by because the really really key thing about the little mermaid 3 is that it features i'm declaring it already i know you haven't seen it I'm not really suggesting that you watch it, but this movie features, I think, the first Disney-versity legend from a non-animated canon film.
0: Whoa. Okay, that's a big claim.
1: It it has to happen. There's no way around it. He is in. I'm not even... There's no argument (laughs) here. Okay? He is Marina's sidekick, but he's not really evil. He's like a very mild-mannered kind of devoted assistant to Marina, and his name is... His name is Benjamin, actually, so okay, already, yeah, gre- already greasing already the wheels a bit there. Yeah. His name is Benjamin and he is a manatee. Oh. Uh, and he looks like this.
0: He looks adorable. Go. He's got a great name. And who doesn't love a manatee?
1: Benjamin the manatee. I've got some more pictures of him. He's oh he's a bit sad in oh. that one. Because he doesn't like he doesn't like the evil plan that he's being forced oh, to no. participate in. There he is in jail there, Marina's being arrested (laughs) and he's kind of comforting her in jail. Marina, who I was there
0: thinking, oh, at least they haven't just cloned Ursula again, but has purple hair and is black and white and stripy and big Ursula vibes still.
1: Yeah, Yeah. there was a big fan theory while they were marketing this movie that Marina was going to be Ursula in disguise, but that didn't pan out. Anyway, just look at that guy. Look at Benjamin. Again, he's also going on Twitter. (laughs) You can find all of these. All all this material is going to be out there. He's in. He's a Disney-versity. He's just so adorable. He's one of the cute. For me, he's one of the cutest characters Disney have ever produced. And he's in a movie that is a solid two stars So I'm not necessarily recommending it, but I am recommending you just look at pictures of Benjamin, put one in your wallet. Well, Sam,
0: now that you live not far down the road from me, that I don't have to come all the way to Newcastle to see, I propose we need to have a night soon where we watch the Little Mermaid Shaggy Edition live action celeb sing along, whatever the hell that was. I'll come round to yours. We'll watch that. And if you can just find select Benjamin scenes of The Little Mermaid 3, maybe we can watch those together too. Does that sound good? All right, I'm down. Yep, yep, yep. (laughs) And obviously there is, as you mentioned before, a live action remake. Live-ish action. Who knows what any of these films are going to look like, but there is a new version of The Little Mermaid coming out, directed by Rob Marshall, who did Chicago. And has he done any of the other Disney stuff
1: recently? He's worked with Disney, he did their adaptation of Into the Woods, so he's got a lot of cred when it comes to big musical adaptations. Some of them have been good, some of them have been less good. Oh, we did Mary Poppins Returns as well, which I quite like.
0: Ah, I like Mary Poppins Returns. So I, I hope this is going to be good. Not only that, but there are new songs, not just from Alan Menken but from a certain guy I like to call Lynn manuel Miranda, who I am a massive fan of, I know Sam's a big fan as well, and he loves The Little Mermaid. So I'm fascinated to see what songs he contributes here, especially come on after Moana and Encanto, more Lin Disney songs, sign me up for that. Javier Bardem is playing King Triton, uh, Hallie Bailey of uh, Chloe and Hallie is playing Ariel, Melissa McCarthy, is playing Ursula, even though there was a fan campaign for Lizzo to take the role. That's the
1: question mark for me. I'm not <laughs> sure about that. I'll need to hear. Him. I, have I heard Melissa McCarthy sing? I don't know about that. But the exciting casting here, right?
0: Sebastian, David Diggs, the incredible David Diggs from the original Hamilton cast. Intriguing Jacob Tremblay is playing Flounder. But Scuttle, who's playing my boy Scuttle? Aquafina. It's going to be your girl scuttle in this one. Yeah. Look, I really like Aquafina's comic performances, but she's got a lot to live up to with her scuttle. But we'll find out in 2023, next year that is due out at some point. I'm sure we'll mention it on the pod by the time that comes around. And that is it for this week's class. Thank you again so much for holding out while we were on our longer than anticipated break, uh, but I'm so excited this huge new era is underway and we have so much great stuff still to come. So join us again for our next seminar as we face our first ever canonical Walt Disney Animation Studios sequel, the return of those globetrotting adventure mice in The Rescuers Down Under. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you fancy dropping us a little review or a star rating, we'll grant whatever wish you desire. Warning, side effects may include loss of voice and turning into a small worm creature in an underwater cave. Listener discretion is advised. But for now, it's goodbye from Sam, goodbye, and it's goodbye from me, (laughs) that's me trying to talk underwater. (laughs) it's good to be back we'll see you next time for the return of Orville and those other mice guys uh don't hold your breath what there's not much Orville (laughs) but Sam why are we doing this film on the why did they make this film you'll see you'll see we'll catch you in a couple of weeks bye Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity
1: on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class.